You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 457. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on January 20th, 2021. Today's episode, thousands of Norwegian Air crew members lose their jobs as the airline gets out of long haul. The civilian air patrol starts delivering COVID vaccines. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the Deutschendorfs. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 457 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in... New York City! I'll have to readjust that. Uh, Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and grant (laughs) answering your great feedback. Wow. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based here in Atlanta, and I cannot read today. Joining me today, though, I'm pretty sure she knows how to read. From her lakeside studio in South... Kagalucky, Kagalucky, A doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated backstabbing jumper-dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Um, I think I can still read. I'm not sure about speaking. We'll find out as the show goes on. Well, I don't think I can do either, actually. But uh, you're going to have a much better chance than I, I think. Maybe. All right. And also joining us today from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, Steph. What a great day it's been today. A very special day. I gather it's our birthday. It is. We're going to talk about that when we kind of get to know each other and what we've been doing since the last episode. I can't wait since you're two complete strangers. It is going to be exciting, that's for sure. uh, (laughs) Let's move on to the news. Stand by for news. All right. First item here is a final report. This incident occurred at uh, Toronto Pearson International Airport back in August of 2019. And it uh, was an, a rejected takeoff due to no takeoff clearance and crossing aircraft. An Air Georgian Canadair CRJ200 registration Charlie Golf Kilo Echo Juliet 
performing flight 7339 from Toronto, Ontario to Columbus, Ohio, with 42 passengers and three crew, have been cleared to line up on runway 33 right. And an Air Canada Boeing 777-300 registration Charlie Foxtrot India Uniform Romeo, performing flight 883 from Copenhagen to Toronto, with 378 passengers and 12 crew, had landed on runway 33 left was cleared to cross runway 33 right at Taxiway Hotel without delay. And that's basically at the far end of 33 right. Uh, let's see here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move down to the uh, Transportation Safety Board's description of the sequence of events. Um, at 12.42 local time, the first officer of the CRJ-200, the Air Georgian uh, CRJ, had finished the taxi checklist and was continuing with the lineup checklist when the tower controller instructed the flight crew to line up on runway 33 right. With this instruction, the tower controller included an amendment to the altitude and heading for the standard instrument departure, or SID, we like to call it, clearance, to ensure adequate separation with the, uh, the Dash 8 that had just departed. After reading back the instructions correctly, the first officer changed the altitude selector and then returned to the next item on the lineup checklist. After hearing the correct readback from the first officer of the CRJ-200, the tower controller, who was also actively controlling arrivals on 33 left, turned to observe another de Havilland DHC-8 aircraft that was on approach for landing 33 left. As the CRJ-200 taxied to line up on 33 right, the Boeing 777 was approaching the 33 right hold short line at Taxiway Hotel, again at the far end of the uh, runway. At 1243 16, the north ground controller, who had coordinated runway activity with the tower controller, instructed the flight crew of the Boeing 777 to cross 33 right without delay. As the flight crew of the CRJ-200 lined up into position on runway 33 right and the first officer finished the lineup checklist, the captain asked the FO if they received a takeoff clearance. The FO stated that they had. At 12.43 and 30 seconds, as the Boeing 777 crossed the runway holding position for 33 right, the crew of the CRJ-200 began the takeoff roll. The crew had not received takeoff clearance from the tower controller. The CRJ-200 began to accelerate. As the aircraft approached the peak of the elevated hump in the runway, the captain saw the Boeing 777 approximately 5,400 feet ahead and immediately rejected the takeoff. At that time, the flight crew realized that they had likely not received a takeoff clearance. At 12.43 and 46 seconds, the Runway Incursion Monitoring and Conflict Alert System, the RIMCAS-4, issued a visual alert and audible alarm in the tower. The tower controller, who had been focused on the arriving Dash 8 aircraft on 33 left, instantly shifted his attention to the conflict on 33 right. At uh, 53 seconds after, the tower controller quickly assessed the situation, determined that there was no risk of collision, and immediately issued a takeoff clearance to the crew of the CRJ-200, who had already initiated a rejected takeoff. The crew of the CRJ-200 made a radio call to inform the tower controller that they were rejecting the takeoff. The tower controller then instructed the CRJ-200 to exit runway 33 right at Taxiway Bravo 2. And uh, so long story short, they did the applicable checklist items for a rejected takeoff, made sure everything was okay, and uh, went back down to the departure end of the runway. And this time took off with uh, clearance from the air traffic tower. And 
let's see, the Transportation Safety Board uh, analyzed this and uh, said as the CRJ-200 approached runway 33 right, the flight crew was expecting to receive immediate authorization to take off. Although the first officer read back the ATC instructions correctly, she had limited um, attentional resources to evaluate the content of the instructions as her focus was on completing the lineup checklist. The FO's load was further elevated as she focused on the heading and altitude change of the standard instrument departure amendment, which at the time she believed was most important in the lineup instruction. Uh, the SID amendment reinforced the first officer's expectation that they would soon receive authorization to take off. It is important to note that the FO was accustomed to receiving a SID amendment following, followed by a takeoff clearance. And this occurrence, when the FO received and read back the lineup instruction with the SID amendment, she misinterpreted that ATC communication as a clearance for takeoff. What do they call that? Expectation bias? Um, exactly. Yep. Expectation bias, yes. Let's see. When the captain asked if the first officer or asked the FO if they had received clearance to take off, the FO, the FO who had misinterpreted the tower controller lineup and said amendment instructions as clearance to take off replied that they had received takeoff clearance. This interpretation matched the crew's mental model of the situation that they would be taking off shortly after lining up on runway 33 right. Anyway, so it goes on to talk about the fact that it wasn't really a, a big deal. I mean, the, um, the, uh, the part of the problem, as I mentioned in, in the, um, uh, sequence of events is the fact that three, three, right. Uh, at, when you're at the South East end of the runway and you're beginning a takeoff roll, you really cannot see the end of the runway because it, it gradually is an upslope and then it kind of peaks somewhere, I don't know, close to the middle of the runway, I guess. And then it kind of either levels off or goes back down. Yes, Liz. Got a hump. Yep. <laughs> Is that a verb or a noun? You're a, okay. Um, and uh, we're not talking about Poppy. What are we talking about here? I don't know. Huh, okay. I'm just going to leave a sufficient pause so I'll know where to start my editing. <laughs> I mean, we were following. Okay. Just- um, it was just like you were communing with a, a, a deity. <laughs> well, in a way, I am. Liz is the, de- the APG deity. <laughs> anyway, um, based on TSB, okay, we were talking about the hump in the runway and the fact that you can't see necessarily. I mean, they said they did a study that at 8,900 feet away, you may have been able to see the very, very top portion of the vertical stabilizer on the triple seven, but it would likely be kind of hard to see. in uh, in the, I don't know, all the other stuff that you have, the clutter that you would see in the background there. And, um, so, um, I can understand the startle effect that the captain had as they kind of reached that the crest of the hump and then went, Whoa, why is there a big giant airplane crossing my runway? Oh, maybe we didn't receive takeoff clearance. Oh, let's see. Here's an interesting question from Lane. Uh, do our esteemed pilots use any tricks as reminders for receiving clearance, such as landing lights on when clear for takeoff? Hang on. Do we have any esteemed pilots here? 
So no, I don't. In, in just the coffee shop? Us, I'm, afraid. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was, I'm checking the, <laughs> the coffee, coffee shop. The coffee shop looks rather empty this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Well, social distancing. Um, that's right. There are no esteemed pilots, uh, so that, that's going to be a tough question to answer. <laughs> but I can tell you what I do. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, we uh, at the, I think it depends on the policy of your airline at uh, Acme Airlines. Uh, when we are uh, told to line up and wait, uh, or when we're taking the uh, runway before we receive takeoff clearance, we turn on certain lights. Um, in in the case of my airplane, we turn on the taxi light, uh, which is on the nose wheel. Uh, we do have the wing landing lights extended, but uh, we don't normally turn those on at that point until we receive clearance for takeoff. Um and again, it depends on your company's uh, SOP when it comes to that sort of thing. But, um, you know, when we receive takeoff clearance, that's when all the lights come on, all the available lights. Um, Nick, I'm assuming it's similar for you We all? didn't have the same procedure in yeah. my outfit. Okay. No. Uh, as soon as we entered the runway, we put the lights on because otherwise it meant holding part of the checklist mm-hmm. uh, because it's in the checklist. Yeah. Um, and uh, but we, because of the dangers of misinterpreting uh, commands to or clearances to cross runways, take off that sort of thing, we I, certainly in my copy, we always I always made a point of double confirming with the other pilot when I had received a clearance. So I would say, as as he said, "You're clear takeoff." I would turn and look at him and say, "That's our takeoff clearance." And I would expect him to do something similar back to me so that we're both in the loop. I very rarely like to do something <laughs> like start rolling down the runway unless I as well had heard the clearance myself. Well, you know, so as plenty I say, of times I ask for a repeat. I was just going mm-hmm. to say that that little piece of information that you just spouted is like priceless because, and we always say, you know, it's a free call. You know, if you if you receive a clearance to an altitude uh, and you think to yourself all of a sudden, hmm, did we, would you double check that altitude clearance? I mean, were we cleared to descend from 3.5 to 3.3? And then the person makes another radio call and says, hey, we just want to verify that we are cleared to flight level 3.3.0 or whatever. And then usually the air traffic controller will come back and say, thank you for asking. Because it's just so much easier yeah. To have mm-hmm. a, an extra one or two radio calls there just to make sure everybody was on the same page. And then you don't have all that paperwork uh, afterwards or possibly even a, you know, an accident. Um, and uh, takeoff clearance is one of those that if you're not absolutely sure, you know, just swallow your pride and say, would you mind just for my, you know, for make me feel better. Ask the tower controller again that we are clear. You know, are we clear for takeoff? And uh, there is zero harm in saying just confirm yeah take off clearance or confirm whatever it is that you're looking for. And we, I do that all the time flying in a uh, Bravo airspace because we need that clearance to enter the Bravo Mm -hmm. airspace. And when you're doing it all day, every day, and oftentimes talking to the same controller, sometimes you just don't hear those magic words that you're looking for, even though you know that that's kind of what they meant to say. Um, But it's better just to have it uh, said without any doubt or uncertainty. Exactly. I'd rather be that that annoying pilot (laughs) that continuously asks for everything to be stated twice. Now, I don't do that. Hey, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not saying that that's you. I'm just saying, especially, that's such a... Sometimes it's me, but I'd rather ask it than, you know. Yeah, There are a couple of things as well that um, would have made life a little easier for them. Um, Now, 
I've been to airports where they do exactly what they do here at Toronto, and that is that the ground controller that the 777 was on, on a different frequency, does his coordination with the tower controller, who's controlling the runway, um, and they sort of get a, an agreement between the two that it's safe for him to cross his aircraft. Um, so that the two pilots involved weren't on the same frequency. Mm-hmm. But I've also been to plenty of other airports, just as the same size as Toronto or even bigger, where the ground controller will hand you to the tower controller because you're about to cross his runway, and he wants everyone on his frequency. Now, had that happened and the 777 was there and given clearance to cross the runway by the tower controller, the Dash 8 uh, air captain might well have heard that, and it would have given him the essay that an aircraft was crossing his runway. So when his FO said, yeah, we got takeoff clearance, he'd say, well, actually, I just heard that 777 might be crossing our runway. Can we double-check that? Right. Now, there's not not a guarantee that when you have the – everybody on the same frequency that people are going to actually hear everything, but there's a much better chance of it when you are on the same frequency. Obviously there's a zero chance of it when you're not. And I agree with Nick. That's one of my pet peeves. I want to be, I want to hear everything that has to do with my runway, whether I'm waiting for somebody or I'm waiting for takeoff or I'm about to land. And all of a sudden I see somebody crossing my runway and I'm thinking, what, where, where did that come from? I'm not hearing that. Yeah. Particularly on this runway where you're quite likely to be, um, out of sight of the aircraft that's crossing further down, mm-hmm. as was the case here. They couldn't see the aircraft. Uh, I mean, we whenever we do a runway crossing, we always bang all our lights on so that if, just in case, uh, an accident like this is about to happen, people stand a chance of seeing us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that obviously the same for the aircraft. This is one of the reasons why we turn our lights on just prior to takeoff so that the aircraft uh, that's crossing can see that there's an aircraft there and he'll be, oh, God, is that guy moving? Mm-hmm. No, no, I think we're safe. We'll, we can carry on, even though they've got a clearance. Um, finally, I was going to say that um, their explanation of why the first officer um, sort of had this uh, bias, this expectation bias towards receiving a clearance I can understand it because I've been in just that situation, but I'm not sure if if it's, um, it might be a reason. I'm not sure if it's an excuse because the actions that we take as a crew, when we line up to take off are generally speaking, exactly the same. We do the same checks. We get a clearance. We might even get an amended clearance uh, and we get a takeoff. That's all part of the job. And if you can't um, manage your mental processes through that, then you might be doing something a little bit wrong in your own mind. You're not compartmentalizing your duties. Uh, And the one thing you should be absolutely certain you've received is the takeoff clearance. So Mm -hmm. if you're not absolutely certain that you've done that, then you need to mm, stop and go, no, I'm not sure. Yeah. Very good. There was some point in this um, analysis by the TSB that uh, talked about the captain, um, you know, kind of being distracted a little bit, you know, ensuring that the first officer was doing all of her checklists correctly and her flows and that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, you know what, that, that your, your emphasis at this point should be on your, your 
taxiing the airplane, you're you're positioning the airplane for takeoff. You should be completely listening to the communications there. I mean, that to me, that's all on him. Um, he should have. I mean, when I read through this, it sounded like uh, to, the impression that I got was that they were just a bit disorganized, like they mm-hmm. weren't quite and kind of rushed everything. as well. Kind of rushed. Yep. And you know what? Yeah. Instead uh, of uh, him asking the, the FO, rushing? I mean, the the well, because they were it was a very short taxi out, and um, they were I don't know why they were, they were so rushed. Yeah, but so, um, still, what's the reason? Take you know, and then take the time you need. It's not going to be that much extra time. And he took he took nope. the time though to ask the first officer if they were clear for takeoff. It could have been he could have easily have just hit the radio switch and said confirm. You know, uh, Air Georgia flight, whatever, clear for takeoff, runway three through mm-hmm. right. I mean, yeah, you know, a lot of out of interest. I contacted Adam, uh, mm-hmm. wonderfully friendly uh, and very knowledgeable air traffic controller about the um, what's the name of that system? The oh, the uh, uh, the in uh, in runway Rimcast Rimcast system. Oh, Rimcast, the one in this situation. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so I asked him what the uh, uh, tower controller, because apparently they got a level one alert, and I wondered what that was and why the tower controller hadn't um, spotted that. Uh, level one alert is when the same runway is occupied by two um, aircraft or an aircraft and a vehicle or whatever, and it's only an amber warning or a yellow warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes up on the radar display and it's independent it's a independent system um you know that uh, air traffickers have to warn them so it's not required anyone's input it will happen automatically um and that's kind of a stage one the stage two happens when uh, one of the aircraft i.e the taking off aircraft hits about 40 knots and then it comes up with a red warning and there's an oral uh warning as well so um I was just a little surprised that they got to the speed they did because if 40 knots had appeared and the warning happened, I would have assumed the tower would have immediately realized unless he's got his attention diverted to several runways, perhaps he does control several runways, I don't Mm -hmm. know. And it took him a while to reorientate on what the potential problem was. But um, I would have thought, the closing speed of 40 knots was relatively slow, uh, whereas they actually got to, what, 90-odd knots? Well, actually, I, I, I think I did mention the fact that uh, the, this tower controller was controlling both runways and that after uh-huh. he told them to line up, his attention was now on 3-3 left, uh, the 777 yeah. rolling out, the Dash 8 coming in behind him. And it wasn't until he received this audible warning from the RIMCAST system that his attention was brought back to the runway, uh, and and then interestingly, uh, their their um, policy states that a controller initiated aborted takeoff is an extreme measure used only where no clear alternative exists. In this occurrence, although MATS requires an abort takeoff instruction to be issued when the stage two alert is triggered, the tower controller chose not to issue an abort instruction, but rather issued a takeoff clearance because he assessed that there was no risk of collision. So I guess I'm not sure that they really have the flexibility to make a decision one way or another. It sounds to me like when that stage two alert is activated, that he is supposed to issue an abort uh, instruction, I guess, regardless of how fast the airplane is going. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I would uh, think that's probably the safest thing to do because, you know, different types of aircraft might have different roles and you really don't 
I'm absolutely certain he's probably pretty experienced and he probably had a good idea where the CRJ was going to, not the CRJ, I keep getting... Yeah, it's well, a CRJ. CRJ 200. Yeah, CRJ 200. You call it a dash would, uh, before, but I'm yeah. sure they take no He probably uh, had a pretty good idea where it was going to be and where it would get airborne. And the fact that the 777 had more or less cleared the runway, yeah. um, it was probably a fair thing to do. But the crew in, in the cockpit of the CRJ, having initiated an abort, if they suddenly got a takeoff clearance... Could they suddenly go, oh, oh we're, we're clear <laughs> okay. now. Let's, let's turn this support into a takeoff again, then, which would have put them in a dreadful situation. Yeah, that situation. would have been a bad, that bad, would not bad have been thing. A good situation. Yeah, they did yeah. the right thing by saying, you know what? Yeah. Even though I just heard him say clear for takeoff, we've already initiated the abort, so that's what we have to stick yeah. with. Uh, you know, I was thinking, uh, I was looking through some things, and I noticed that just recently in, oh, what was it? A uh, It was either on Aviation Herald or Aviation Safety Network. Um, in October of uh, last year, not, not that long ago, um, there was another incident uh, at Toronto Pearson International, and this time it involved a Jazz Dash 8. Maybe this is what you were thinking about, uh, Nick, even though you haven't heard any of this. Um, but I did get some <laughs> um, live ATC um, communication from this particular incident. And again, you can kind of hear how confusing this might be, especially if you're kind of expecting certain things to happen in a certain sequence. Jazz 603, tower, line up for 05, airborne left turn, heading 360. Okay, line up 05, airborne left, heading 360, Jazz 603. Jazz 603. He said rolling. Jazz 603, departure 128, Jazz 603. Jazz 603. Jazz 603, Tower. You did clearance to take off, correct? Uh, you never got an official takeoff clearance, but uh, there was nothing there, so I didn't want to disrupt your your role. So. Yeah, so that, again, same airport, different runway. That was runway 05. Um, and apparently there wasn't really a lot going on at that time, thankfully. So um, to me, the confusing thing is that the lineup and wait instruction came in the middle of all the departure in, like or it came mm -hmm. before that yeah but i guess that that sounds to me like it's kind of a normal thing that happens at uh i'm trying to think airport. how i normally hear it and now i'm, I'm not certain but it seems like it's normally all that information and then line up and wait yeah but here it's a little bit different here because uh, i don't know if you noticed or not but uh, in both of these instances it wasn't a line up and wait uh clearance it, it was, was just, just a lineup lineup they just say line up. They don't use the term wait. And I don't know at what point they're required to say line up and wait and, you know, when they can just say line up. But, um, yeah, it kind of gives you that. That's kind of the same thing, though, if you're just mm -hmm. told to line up and not right. given a takeoff clearance, you're True. by default waiting. Yeah. And, you know, you hear, you hear airborne heading 360, contact departure. I mean, I can easily see. I can understand. Yeah, I can human see that. Factor I can actually, I can oh. very much see that. Yeah. So, you know, um, most of the clearances that require uh, that, that those final bit of uh, instructions just as you're about to take off, in my experience, they usually give that clearance and then they go clear to take off. That's mm -hmm. the final thing you get is a clearance to take off. It, you know, would be useful in these both of these cases if uh, after the clearance they said and continue to hold mm -hmm. exactly. um, so that. You know, it would take away that bias. Oh, this isn't a takeoff clearance. They want me to continue to or to wait. Would it be 
probably the correct terminology. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. I think the instruction for what you're supposed to do, whether it's hold, wait, take off, should come at the very end of all of that. Yeah. Because that's the last thing your brain's going to remember. If the last thing you hear is, once airborne, this, 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 you're going to go, okay, here we go. Yeah. Mind you, I know plenty of pilots that would be halfway down the runway by the time they're finished <laughs> giving that departure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Oops. Oh, boy. Hey, uh, just a quick time out to acknowledge our live audience while we're recording this show today on the 20th of January. Um, Dari over there said he expected more chatter here. But Dari, you're over there on Facebook. And I think most of the people that are watching the show are, yeah, considerably more, about five times the number over on YouTube. So I would personally go over to youtube and join the uh, chat room there and then yeah there's better beer on youtube as well better beer on youtube wow okay yeah. i didn't know that you learn something new every every day all right where's the coffee shop gone uh well uh liz was saying that my coffee shop was um flashing in the background <laughs> oh really so is it still is my really? is my video still flashing liz nope okay Liz basically said that she uh, didn't like the coffee shop. So, you know, had to make her happy. She doesn't like Dude. coffee, apparently, right now, this time of day. Is there a tea shop? She's, I don't had, know. A bottle of, oh. she's had a bottle of champagne, so she's probably not making the best of this. <laughs> yeah. So how many bottles of champagne have you had today, Liz? Just wondering. <laughs> Just, Just one, yeah. One glass? Right. Big glass. <laughs> That's Okay. <laughs> I believe you. I mean, it's the glass that holds the entire bottle, correct? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we all those kind of glasses. The champagne goes <laughs> flat after a while, so you've got to drink it all in one. I have, I have one of those wine glasses that's like a very large goblet, and it holds the entire. Oh bottle. man, like I, uh, I switched to beer, and I took a like a twelve ounce beer and poured it in, and it maybe filled half of it. I'm thinking, oh wow, that's a that's a lot of liquid in there. <laughs> yeah, so Love if it. I. If I fill that thing three quarters full, um, that's probably about 500 and some odd milliliters or more. <laughs> I just put in a glass, which is getting darn close to a full bottle of uh, wine. Uh, I'm at the half hour oh, mark. Okay. Thank you, Liz. We're at the half hour mark, everyone. We've done. Well, we've we have finished. One the first oh, news item. <laughs> Guess we've got to hurry up then. <laughs> oh, I see. Today. I'm now re reading between the lines. Quit talking so much that. about this stuff. That was a hurry up, don't wait. Hurry up and don't wait. Okay, good point. All right, well, there you go. I think we uh, we learned something from these instances. And uh, yeah, just don't, it's just not safe to fly in Canada, apparently is what we've learned. <laughs> um, just kidding. Um, item B, Flyby Q400s to be converted into firefighters for Con Air. Uh, Canadian aerial firefighting specialist, Conair, uh, Canadians again. You can tell that we have a producer director that lives in uh, Canada. A lot of our news yeah. items tend to kind of focus on Canada for some reason. Um, anyway, um, they that group, that Canadian firefighting specialist group, has emerged as a buyer of 11 Bombardier Q400 turboprops formerly operated by UK regional carrier Flybe. The aircraft had been the subject of a sale arranged through Skyworld Aviation, which has disclosed its appointment to market the 
vintage aircraft, <laughs> vintage, dating from 2007 <laughs> through 2009 in August last year. Now, hang on. To, how is that a vintage airplane? Well, it would put yours in the antique world. Oh, oh definitely. It? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway. Conair Group says it will start receiving them this month, stating that they will be converted to Q400AT air tankers and join its firefighting fleet of 70 aircraft, which includes mm. such types as the BAE Systems Avro RJ85 and Con- Convair 580. Now, that's a vintage airplane there, the Convair 580. Uh. The purchase marks the most significant investment Conair has made to date towards developing a fleet of next-generation aircraft designed to better fight wildfires for years to come. And, uh, well, so, now wait a minute. Vintage yeah. aircraft or next generation aircraft? Uh, what are we? I'm so confused. Fleet of. Oh yeah. Wait a minute. How can you use the same terms in the same article? One wonders. I don't know. If you're a, a lazy journalist, perhaps. Oh, I can't believe you said that, Nick. I mean, they're all very hardworking. <laughs> they go into excruciating detail. Determining yeah. all the correct well, facts. Well, at least it's not a 747. He's got a picture of that. That's true. This is actually a Q400 pictured, um, if you're watching the video. Good-looking airplane. And uh, has a little bit of a leak. Uh, I think somebody should look into that after <laughs> yeah. they land. But other than that, yeah. good to go. Well, that's a hell of a way to dump fuel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But... The good part is that it dumps very quickly. You don't have to take a lot of time dilly dallying around waiting for the That's fuel. True. To, you better get the uh, you better get the valve shut at just at the right moment. Yes. <laughs> Let's see. Primary feature of this Q four hundred AT is a ten thousand liter retardant tank. That's a lot. Ten thousand liters. Yeah. So that's like three point seven five. So ten thousand times divided by three point seven five. That's pretty good. Couple thousand gallons, right? I'm just picturing like two liter bottles of soda, and you know. Oh yeah, 5, that's the most accurate liters. way to do it, stuff. <laughs> one, one, two, three. I have know. no other frame. I'll of see reference. if I'll. I'll just try to find a picture of ten thousand liter bottles of Coke. Five thousand. Oh, just yeah. five thousand. Oh, oh, two well, liters. Two okay, liter bottles. Gotcha. All right, so I'm going to say ten thousand divided by three point seven five. That is approximately two thousand six hundred and sixty-six gallons. Okay, much better. That's I a lot. Of, understand that. That's a lot. Anyway, uh, so that's kind of cool. Um, they're let they're not letting these airplanes, you know, get unused. And well, at the cool. moment, this is a growing business, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, considering yeah. the number of really bad forest fires we had uh, last year, mm-hmm. yep, gonna need every airplane they've got. There you go. Of course, nothing beats that seven twenty seven, in my opinion. But mm. yeah. All right, um, moving right along, Liz. Uh, more than 1,000 jobs lost at Gatwick as Norwegian Airlines abandons the long-haul network. This is from The Independent. Um, more than 1,000 pilots and cabin crew working at Gatwick for the budget airline Norwegian are learning they have lost their jobs. The Oslo-based airline is to abandon its transatlantic and Asian network of long-haul flights, many of them based at the Sussex Airport. Around 1,100 UK crew will be made redundant. Along, Well, that's been the case all along, actually. Along with a similar number in France, Italy, Spain, and the US. Oh, and the US. The firm says future demand remains highly uncertain. Under these circumstances, a long-haul operation is not viable for Norwegian 
and these operations will not continue. So you'll remember they have a fleet of long-haul Boeing 787 Dreamliners, uh, which have been grounded since March of last year and uh, will not fly again for Norwegian Airlines. Hopefully somebody out there will snap them up and put them to good use. But, uh, you know, a lot of people have said that they didn't think that, of course, you know, COVID had a way of kind of causing a lot of heartache in many different industries, especially the airline industry. But uh, even before COVID, um, there had been a lot of speculation, I think, from a lot of people that the long haul thing may not work in the long run for for Norwegian. But again, yeah, I think people um, thought they might have overextended themselves. Uh, they came into the market um, as a very new company at the point where aviation fuel prices were really low. Uh, most established airlines who had hedged their fuel were still paying a considerably higher price than the current market price. Mm. Norwegian were able to take advantage of this, and they were extremely successful uh, in their initial period. Uh, and established a very large foothold uh, in the market that um, a lot of airport, uh, airlines like Virgin Atlantic, uh, they were, found them now as a major competitor. So uh, it was only once everyone else could get back on a bit of a more level playing field with fuel costs did um, Norwegian really start to feel the weight of competition. Uh, so it wasn't Brilliant for them, but I'm sure that uh, Virgin will be uh, sighing a sigh of relief right mm. now because uh, they have been a th- real thorn in their sides up to this point. I'll bet. They were doing a lot of flying into um, uh, like secondary airports too for larger cities, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Especially that's right. But uh, they were also competing uh, on fairly direct routes with mm. uh, Virgin, for example. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it was not comfortable and... Uh, uh, of course, I'm terribly sad for the folks that have worked for the airline. Jeez, uh, never want to see that happen. But, um, you know, perhaps the market is a bit full of aircraft right now. It says Someone's going to have to go. They plan to operate 50 Boeing 737 aircraft in 2021 this year, increasing to 70 next year. So looks like they're just going to focus on the shorter haul. All right. Um, continuing on, here's some, here's some good news. One of those good feel good stories. Um, when the great lakes region, civil air patrol received a request from the defense coordinating element at FEMA's region five office in December, 2020 to transport the COVID-19 vaccine by air to several locations in Wisconsin and Michigan, the unit was poised for action. The request to deliver the first and second rounds of the vaccine, or at least now the first. (laughs) Um, On behalf of the Indian Health Service, a Department of Health and Human Services agency responsible for health care, covering roughly 2.6 million American Indians and Alaska Natives belonging to 574 recognized tribes in 37 states. While vaccine transport by air on a large scale, think FedEx and UPS, has splashed through the news that kind of aerial cargo service paints with a broad brush in order to get the vaccine, uh, the needed vaccine into remote areas, a more precise tool is required. Enter general aviation and specifically the cap, the civil air patrol. Uh, Put us in the game, said civil air patrol, major Rod Rakick, 
one of the pilots detailed for the mission. We want to be utilized. We want to be the force multiplier. After all, that's why the CAP was created back in the 1940s to supplement and aid the U.S. Air Force in a wide variety of critical tasks best suited for light civilian-style aircraft. have some pictures here of the uh, mission um, while we discuss this. I think this is pretty pretty cool that they're employing the Civil Air Patrol to uh, to do this. Here we go. Yeah, I suspect they're a much underutilized um, component, really, aren't they? Uh, yeah. So Although it's great that they've I, got at how much yeah. they actually do every year. I was reading they do, something. They do quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Um, they just don't hear about uh, it. You know, as David in the uh, chat room points out, they've been doing this all over the country with the Civil Air Patrol as well. Um, so probably not just isolated to Wisconsin. And, well, perhaps and, they uh, need a new uh, PR officer, then. <laughs> like David Ogden. Um, there you go. He was a very great proud job, officer David. in the Civil Air Patrol. Um, yeah, he's a a, a big wig. In the uh, uh, south southern region, what what are you doing there, Nick? Oh, okay, trying to peer over the news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just leave it there, Liz. If uh, if I were you, it's it's uh, uh, much better numbers when we can't see Nick's face. Just kidding, of course. Um, anyway, uh, so there is that picture. Let me uh, scroll through another one. Here's a picture of the inside of. Uh, that previous exterior view of the air is that airplane um, stuff? Is that like the airplane that you fly? The Kodiak? Is that a Kodiak or is that a uh, caravan? What is that? No, I don't know what it it's is. Hard to, it's hard to hard to tell. Usually they have one eighty twos, but that's a weird that's, angle. It looks bigger than no. Yeah, I don't know what that like is a, on the inside there. Um, looks like a pretty big airplane. Larger, the back. but I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't know either. Okay, anywho, I, I know what it is. What is it? What is it? It's a puddle jumping bug smasher. Okay, there we go. Uh, ding, the ding, ding. PJ, I give the uh, 50% thumbs down on the, that one. The Louis. PJBS? Oh, I think that is referred to. Puddle jumping bug smasher. Someone there says it's an, an air it's van. A, oh, it's a Gippsland, Gippsland, Gippsland air, air van. van. There you go. Yeah, that's an Austra- never... What's an Australian airplane doing up there in the snow? It'll never cope with that. Well, they have snow in Australia, don't they? Well, only on the top of the Blue Mountains, and they're not very yeah. much of it. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, that's kind of a cool story. If you want to learn more about this, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for you. You know the deal. Yeah. And well done, Civil Air Patrol. Good job. Good guys. job. And girls? Yes. Um, Volocopter. Working toward FAA approval of VoloCity EVTOL. A German urban air mobility company, Volocopter, has received Federal Aviation Administration permission to pursue certification of its Autonomous Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing, or EVTOL, passenger drone for flights in the U.S. The company says on 15 January that in December, the FAA accepted its application for concurrent type certificate validation in both the USA and Europe. That means the company is working towards certification of its velocity. Oh, I get it. Was I calling it VeloCity? But I guess you could say it's Velocity aircraft design in both jurisdictions. Is that is that what they're calling it? And then would you say Velocopter? Okay. Um, No, I would not. You would not say that. Okay. No, I would. I think it's great. Great name. Velocopter. 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 Wait. Velocopter. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, YASA, Europe's aviation regulator, has already given its design organization approval, DOA. <laughs> That's kind of a... And a uh, it's kind of a sad <laughs> yes. acronym. Not not a great <laughs> Somebody really acronym. Didn't, didn't think that one they through. They didn't think that one through. DOA. Uh, <laughs> we don't want one of those. Uh, the license to develop and build, sorry, the license to develop and build certified aircraft. That gives Volokopter a clear pathway <laughs> to commercial certification of its aircraft. The company expects to launch operations in Europe in the next two to three years. But the USA is also a valued prize on every EVTOL or EVTOL maker's wish list. From the beginning, we have considered the U.S. an important market for our services, says Florian Reuter, the company's chief executive. Certification is the key to this market, and we are excited to begin the process of seeking approval from the FAA to introduce this innovative era of mobility, not only in Europe and Asia, but also in the U.S. Uh, Volocopters of Vol- Volo City. Or Velocity is an 18-motor, two-passenger EVTOL air taxi, which the company says is designed to meet growing demand for a better intra-city mobility in large cities like Los Angeles, New York City, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., among others. It helps to provide scalable air taxi services that will someday compete in cost with automobile taxis. So, there you go. Looks like they're uh, making some forward progress in... Uh, certifying these vehicles, and uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is it? I mean, is it's about time we reach the age of jet of the Jetsons. And, I know, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, but I want my own. I don't want to employ oh, yeah. someone to no, no. program it for me. I want to fly my own. I'm trying to find where are my Jetsons sound effects. I need to find them. I know you I got lost that some months ago, Jeff, and you've never found I? And it. And I haven't been able to find them since. <laughs> um, this is at least the third time I can remember. Okay, here we go. I'll just do it like this. This is the easiest way. I have a special search um, window set up for things like this, and also Jetsons. Jetsons. Easy peasy. And. Perfect. Whatever, you know, these uh, EV tall or whatever they come up with, they need to make that sound. They I do. Won't accept I, yes, they do. Very disappointed that they don't. Effects. And Absolutely. George has got to be sure that he pushes the right buttons. <laughs> oh, George, you pushed the wrong button again. <laughs> 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 Why is she so happy about it? <laughs> well, that, well, I think that would be the right button if she was happy. But uh, yeah, well, exactly. Sure. I mean, it was a children's cartoon, but you know, <laughs> sure it was. Oh, well, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that Rosie. The oh, never mind. Uh, last <laughs> item in our news. Thankfully, um, this was an incident, and it happened uh, last year in October. A Lufthansa cargo Boeing triple, and I'm sorry we missed this. I just noticed it a um, couple of days ago. A Lufthansa cargo Boeing 777-200 freighter registration Delta Alpha Lima Fox golf trot. Golf trot. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> That's what some people do on the golf course. <laughs> the golf trot. Uh, Delta Alpha Lima Fox golf performing flight 8402 from Frankfurt, Maine, Germany to Shanghai, Pudong, China. With four crew was in the initial climb out of Frankfurt's runway 25 center when the crew declared mayday, mayday, reporting unreliable airspeed. 
The crew subsequently inquired with ATC what their altitude readings were. The controller responded 200 feet. The crew reported their standby altimeter was indicating 6,100 feet. Wow, they're thinking, what, this thing's really climbing <laughs> wow. a lot better than it normally does. 6,000 feet accurate. adrift. Very <laughs> yes. accurate. And according to GPS, they were at 6,200 feet. So they should be around that altitude. The crew decided to return to Frankfurt. That's interesting. Why would the controller say they were only 200 feet? Huh. Huh. Because that's where the feed for ADSB comes from. Ah. The, one of the faulty systems, gotcha. I suspect. The aircraft dumped fuel and returned to Frankfurt for a safe landing on runway 7 Center about 65 minutes after departure. Uh, according to ADSB transmitted by the aircraft, uh, it did not climb above 250 feet throughout the entire flight. <laughs> okay. Um, on December 23rd, 2020, uh, Germany's BFU reported the sensors of the left and right static system had not been connected. The occurrence was rated a serious incident and is being investigated by the BFU. Um, from the and that's uh, narrative from the Aviation Herald, and they also picked up this. We were talking about this before the recording started, uh, that uh, the Aviation Safety Network also had this little blurb. After landing, it was found that the sensors of the left and right static systems were not connected. During maintenance before the incident flight, the pneumatic lines of the static system were disconnected and flushed with dry air. The lines were then supposed to be reconnected to the system. To ensure proper functioning of the pitot-static system, a leak test and a system test were then scheduled. This work was signed off. The corresponding work cards had been carried out without any problems. The only problem is they actually didn't do the leak test and system test because they never did reconnect those static system lines. Yeah. An unbelievably crass error. Mm. Let's see a little bit more detail about, uh, what happened here is they're rolling down the runway. They departed 25 center, took off at 204 knots indicated, 191 knots over the ground. About 15 seconds, a wind shear warning occurred, recorded by both the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder with 176 knots indicated and 199 knots over the ground. The first officer commanded max thrust. The commander acknowledged and informed ATC about the wind shear, stating that they now had 50 knots of wind on their tail. The first officer gradually reduced the pitch from about 11 to 7 degrees. The captain instructed to increase the pitch again. The first officer pointed at the airspeed and stated she didn't want to go slow. 178 knots indicated at the time. The captain was puzzled as the tailwind component indicated was now 80 knots. And despite maximum thrust, it was not possible to increase the airspeed. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> the uh, captain, let's see, when the tailwind increased to 100 knots... The commander concluded, this looks odd to me. I conclude this is unreliable airspeed. Captain took control oh, of the right. aircraft. And uh, the first officer assumed the role as pilot monitoring. And uh, yeah. So they did a great job of uh, um, analyzing the situation and taking the appropriate action, running the um, unreliable airspeed uh, checklist. And thankfully, got the airplane on the ground safely and without damage and without loss of life so it worked out well but i could Absolutely. easily see this going yeah. the other way around right yeah i know yeah. i know because we've we've uh, we covered so many incidences <laughs> mm-hmm. of uh, crews completely losing control of the aircraft um and this guy my hat off to him 
because mm-hmm. it would not have been easy because he's obviously concerned about wind shear warnings, mm. but. Uh, you know, on the other hand, and it's very hard to ignore those warnings. Mm. On the other hand, this is looking uh, completely impossible. So right. what else could it be? Mm. And uh, I think his uh, logic was perfect. Yep. And that's why we talk about this all the time on the show. It's uh, so important that you pay a, you pilots out there pay attention to, you know, what your pitch picture looks like in certain phases of flight and what the power, you know, should power. be and you know, what the yep. corresponding uh, performance instruments are telling you. And so that when you when you get in a situation like this and you're going, this doesn't look right at all, just go to, you know, like, you know, eight and a half degrees nose high and, you know, 80% on the power, 90%, whatever, you know, a, a normal climb picture would look like in your airplane and go, okay, that should give me this performance. It's not what's going on here. So, yeah. But as you yeah. said, Nick, when you have a wind shear thing going off, I mean, all hell is breaking loose in that cockpit. And, you know, they're going, what is going on? And your brain's going, uh, I, don't, I don't understand this. Yep, absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't know what systems wish Rick was here that the 777 have uh, in the Airbus. Once you've got into a safe region of flight, uh, the power and attitude is really there just to keep you from you know, stalling the airplane or um, and get you safely away from the ground. Uh, you can then just reach up and turn off uh, two of the um, air data computers and uh, the aircraft should go into a, a backup mode, which um, if you don't have standby, it might actually, you might have to turn off all three. I'm going to, I can't quite remember now. Uh, but you can get up in a backup mode where your speed is uh, indicated by angle of attack or calculated from angle of attack, and your altitude is given to you direct from the uh, GPS readout, uh, assuming you've got one. Uh, and uh, it makes it a very simple job uh, now to fly the aircraft back and make an approach uh, to land. Very safe, very simple. And this system has been dreamt up by Airbus purely as a result of uh, the various uh, crashes that have occurred because uh, crews haven't been able to uh, work out what's going on. Well, thank goodness they've come up with a great system like that. And hopefully other manufacturers are in the process of coming up with a similar system. Oh, I'm pretty sure they uh, they are, yeah. It, okay. it's, it's, not a, well, it's not an impossible thing to do by any means. Just listening to um, Rick's description of systems on the 777 before, I'm sure the 777 has some, some interesting and um, clever yeah, perhaps we can get him to comment on it next time he's on the show. Well, you know, uh, I was able to record, you know, I got together with Rick. I'm not sure if he was going to be able to make it to the show or not. And uh, I asked him this question, if he could explain a little bit of this to us uh, in, in his absence. For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. So there, just a little excerpt. If you want to hear the whole thing, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Rick said it a little bit different there. I think maybe, I don't know, he might have a little Some touch of COVID equipment. or something. I don't know. No, no, that's the voice he uses when he's going into major explanations. Oh. Yeah, that's his lecturing voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay well i think it's now time thankfully to get to this part of the show this segment my favorite one of my favorites of course my very favorite section segment is 
Plain Tales, but this is my second favorite one. Getting to know us. So this is when we talk about what has been going on with all of us since the last episode, which was about what? A week ago? I think. No, no, no. It was Saturday. Saturday. It's only a few days ago. That's right. Barely had time to get the uh, last episode edited and published before we were already trying to decide what we were going to do for this one. Uh, thanks to Liz's wonderful Did I add a few extra syllables? I think so. Yeah. I'm. You know, I have to say, my command of the language on today's show is... Stellar. Uh, stellar. It's, it's never, never, better. never <laughs> been better. Well, it, it's causing great, <laughs> it's causing great amusement, if nothing else. <laughs> not only can I not read, I cannot speak either. So I do apologize. Any of you out there, there have been people that have said they listen to our show to help them improve their English. Well, this is one you need to skip. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> For sure. Or, you know, just a, <laughs> just a what not to do. How yeah. To speak. Opposite day. Oh, all right. Well, I went first last time, so I'm not going to go first this time. So I'm going to ask uh, Nick what he has been up to since the last episode. Uh, uh, in the few days, I've written yeah. a paint tale. <laughs> okay. That's good. To do. That's the most Storm. important thing that you can do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Storm Christoph has just passed over us. It'll be getting through where I live at about midnight. That's been pretty heavy rain. Mm. And I do feel sorry for those folk in the middle of our country, which have received the worst of it. And uh, there were, I think when I last heard the news, somewhere around 80 or 90 major flood warnings up north. So if you live up that way and you live near a big river, my huge sympathies and I you know, fingers crossed that you you stay safe and uh, well. Is it all flowing um, down toward where you live? <laughs> Luckily, I mean, no. that's how it works, right? Like, you know, it goes down the, world, the map. Yeah. Yes. yeah, it does. North to you south. Know, if you're, if you're here, uh-huh. yeah, and you're that's down right. here. Just, uh-huh. <laughs> just makes sense to me. <laughs> Absolutely, but that's uh, definitely no, how I, works. Uh, no, very little else. Um, looking for a. A subject for the next tale, but uh, oh, and I'm just going to mention it again uh, afterwards. But thanks to main man Micah, he's currently in the chat room. Chat room, uh, it was uh, his idea to do this particular plain tale, so uh, uh, shout out for him and a shout out, of course, uh, for Sebastian and uh, his podcast that I'm going to appear on on the 26th, which is which are we day still next? talking about that thing? Yeah, we are, because it hasn't happened yet, oh. uh, which is well, that means we have to hear Tuesday. about it at least one more time. <laughs> we do, next Tuesday. Uh, and I think we'll get away. This will be the last time, I think, unless no, you have no, the show gonna, of the weekend. We'll talk about it again after the fact, because then uh, oh, we'll point everybody to it, right? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, it's happening live uh, on his uh, uh, YouTube channel on um, – uh, what is it? Air crash. Isn't it the 26th? Podcast on the 26th at 7.30 uh, okay. Central European time. That's a Tuesday. So, yes. That's okay. Right. Very good. And uh, I believe we'll be discussing the Tenerife catastrophe. So that's about it, really. That's all, right. all I've got. Interesting. Okay. And um, so thank you, Micah. Nice tale. Um, <laughs> let's see. Does uh, Micah provide all your nice tale? And speaking of, oh no, I can't do that. 
Um, <laughs> so let's say some other things, and then we'll forget the very, very inappropriate um, segue. Thank you. Um, Steph, <laughs> how's yeah. everything been going with you since the last time? Never better. <laughs> Okay, that's uh, it. All right. I I I was struggling while Nick was um at least Nick's done a plain tale in the past few days to have something <laughs> to talk about. Um I've done lots of things, but none of it is actually any information that I can uh, a sensor has gone bad somewhere on one of my uh there's beeping in the background that I'm gonna have to go take care of here in a moment. Oh. Um hopefully you can't hear that. Um no. Nothing to do with with anything there, um, but yeah, in the past, how many days was that? Four, yeah, five. Not a lot. Five, maybe. I I, I was very productive, getting some housework Four. done over the weekend. Just a lot of declutter. You can't tell from this room because most of the clutter ended up in this room, ah. but in other places, decluttering. You know, just mm-hmm. um, trying to make things neat and tidy had a weekend of not doing anything which was very nice i don't get that very often um lots of work stuff going on but not anything that's relevant to the show and not anything that i can share at the moment so but stay tuned in like a couple months (laughs) well uh you know usually your segment is just packed full of amazing things that you're doing all the things well this is i'm taking some some perhaps deserved um downtime at the yeah, moment so i'm sorry that definitely it's deserved not very exciting though no that's okay makes um nick and my life much more exciting sounding and uh nick you I need to watch out for that, that uh, you haven't been running stuff no i've um done something to my foot which is mm. not great it hurts a lot um saw my physical therapist about it yesterday um but mostly i'll be on the bike for the next little while here not running just trying to get some rest. I think it's a tendonitis issue, to be honest. But it it's really pretty tender, pretty sore. It doesn't yeah, feel great. I kind of had an issue like that a few weeks mm-hmm. back, and I had no idea what I did to it, and I have no idea what fixed it. <laughs> it just started. I, I, woke. I woke up with it, to be honest. I didn't do anything specific. It wasn't any one instant while I was running. Um, it wasn't even close in time to a recent run. I'd run like 24 hours prior to that and was fine after that last mm-hmm. run that I did. And then I don't know, woke up, put my foot down to the ground and I went, ah, Liz, it could have been one of those long runs that I was, t- I was on. Uh, you're right. That might've may have been like yeah, my marathon training. Way. That might, might've been where I injured my foot. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. Okay. Um, I guess it's my turn then. Um, Your turn. today Yay. is the 20th anniversary of podcasting. Happy anniversary. Yay. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Of course, we weren't podcasting 20 years ago. (laughs) Sure, it feels like it. Um, Yeah, I know. Sometimes these shows, it feels like 20 years long. (laughs) Um, But uh, I know that many of you listening are going, oh, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, I I don't know how I found this um, blog post by this uh, gentleman regarding the history of... um, of podcasting. And, uh, I thought it was interesting because it's something that I've been involved in since, well, indirectly, I started getting involved in podcasting back in 2005 and, uh, started my first, my, my own podcast back in 2009. And, uh, so that's kind of cool. So podcasting was only eight years old when you, uh, 
Yeah, I'll watch it. but I'll good. tell you what, though, most people, well, even now nowadays, if you ask people, you know, what a podcast is, most people just kind of look at you with a blank stare. But back then, it was even worse. Um, people had never heard of the term um, when I got, I mean, 2005, you know, it was a very, very uh, new thing, a new technology, a new uh, media. And uh, anyway. I, I don't know. I think most people nowadays know what podcasting is, yeah, or at least they're familiar right. with probably it being yeah. like something they can listen to on their mobile device, download mm-hmm. off the internet, something along those lines. They might not know of any podcasts, but yeah, I think they're familiar enough with the it was uh, adam medium. curry is uh, yeah. the bloke that kicked it off isn't it well he and dave weiner um dave weiner had come up isn't with it um, weiner? I, I think it's weiner okay w-h-i-n-e-r and um and i've heard his name um pronounced in several audio shows over the years so um i'm 100 sure it's dave weiner um, he was the one that came up with this whole, uh, back then it was kind of the infancy of just regular blogging. Um, and, uh, because the internet was still, you know, a new thing. And, uh, he came up with a way of, of, um, syndicating, uh, these, um, non audio blogs. And then Adam Curry, kind of a radio guy, he was a MTV VJ for many years. Uh, he like. <laughs> Lane says, I think this show started 20 years ago. <laughs> Thanks a lot, This Lane. particular one right now. That's yeah, I know. I know what he means. That's why my beard's so long. Mm. <laughs> when we started the show, Nick's, Nick didn't have a I beard. I was clean shaven. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. even, I didn't have gray hair. Um, <laughs> I wasn't even born yet, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, Wait you're a not minute. that, you're young, but you're not that young. Anyway, no, um, sadly, not that young <laughs> <laughs> to find out it's, it's so much better for, for me just to tell you to hit this link that I, I'm going to have in the show notes to kind of learn kind of the, about the, the whole birth and infancy and how this whole came, thing came about. But, uh, you are right, sir. Um, Adam Curry had a big part to do with it. So, uh, anyway, uh, happy, uh, happy potiversary, uh, I think is what, uh, Tanya W and the chat room uh, said so thank you very much um as far as myself i'm on vacation a much much needed vacation because i've been working, <laughs> so, been working so hard, hard. <laughs> finally just to sit you know down i really do- <laughs> I, i'm just gonna say i really am in the wrong profession <laughs> yeah i get up definitely. every day i go to work from like eight to five you know <laughs> afternoon time and Every day, though, Steph, have we not? You yeah. pilots are just constantly on vacation or retired. Have we or not mentioned off. to you many, oh, many oh, we're times not feeling well. that you should that you should do this? No, many times. Right? Okay. I'm working. So, why don't you listen to us? Um, wow. Yes, it's a wonderful lifestyle. Now, you know, there uh, it's not all it's not all goodness, and you know, rainbows and unicorns. That's it. That's unicorns. what I was looking for. <laughs> I don't know what I would uh, do without Liz. I'd, I'd be just. Uh, well, I got half of it. Yeah, rainbows, and sunshine. I'd be and a blithering idiot. Thank you. Yes, things. you're right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so there you go. I'm I, I'm not doing a thing. Oh, I did take a uh, Sunday afternoon drive, which Nick you would have loved. Uh, ended up in the North Georgia mountains, and um, I took a wrong turn, and then I had to kind of cut back uh, 
uh, on a different road that I had not planned on on uh, driving upon, and it was amazingly fun. I mean, talking about super tight turns and switchbacks and everything else, um, had a had a lot of fun. So that would have been great for me until the police stopped me and asked me why I was breaking lockdown. (laughs) Well, yeah. Um, And yeah, why are you here in the United States when you're not supposed to be here? (laughs) Might have been some complications. (laughs) But I promise you that when this whole thing clears up and you get over here, we need to go up to that, to those roads that I was on um, on Sunday afternoon. And you'll have a a grin on your face that uh, it will be lasting for quite some time. Sounds sure. fabulous. Can I rent a Harley Davidson? Um, well, you can. Um, I, I don't. Do you know, know how to ride a Harley Davidson? <laughs> I'm not going to be I there mean, with yeah, you. Yes, I'm not going to ride on it, and I'm not going to be on a motorcycle either. You can <laughs> just like have fun with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to rent myself. them around LA, and even uh, took Jilly on a trip out there. We rode around a Harley, beautiful big electric light. That little there. that little roadster that you have uh, would would have been awfully fun to dro- be driving. Oh yeah, on, uh, absolutely. On well, that would have been good too. Anyway, so there you go. Um, I have a trip scheduled next week. Believe it or not, I'm actually going to go back to work for a living on Tuesday of next week. So there you go. Good news. Yeah. All right. I guess I need to kind of get back into the books a little bit and see if I remember exactly how to get to the cockpit once I'm on the airplane and then what I'm supposed to do when I'm sitting in my chair. What, do which side do I sit on again? I don't remember. I'll have to look that up. Anyway, that's it. So without further ado, I think now it's time for us to continue with the feedback segment. Or the coffee fund. Except unless, <laughs> unless there was something else I should do before I do the feedback. What have you been drinking? I don't know what's wrong with me. He said, I, you know, we're missing out here, Nick. Yeah, um, I know we are. I'm not even doing drugs or anything. These beers down All I've had today I know, was I coffee. I am way behind today, I think. It might be. Yeah, Liz is thinking this might be the, the after effects of um, COVID. COVID. Maybe. Mm. They do say yeah. that you, you know, it takes a while for it to kind of completely, you know, I have some cobwebs still here, obviously. All right. Um, Cause I need my sh- pee break. So. Well, you can take your pee break. Okay. During the coffee fund. All right, here we go. You know what time it is. It's time for us to talk about those fine folks that are part of the coffee fund cadre, the coffee bar fund, what we like to call, well, that. Take three or two. Yeah. You know what? I think it's time now that we talk about those fine folks that contribute to the show financially. And we call them the Coffee Fund Cadre. And Jeff Smith is here to sing. Johnny, how much more coffee? Go thing. The APG Java Jive. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jeff Smith, for singing. I love your musical talent. And I also love the people that are members of the Coffee Fund Cadre. A couple different ways to do that. One is the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we have David Schroeder, Jenny Parkinson, 
Chris Randall and David Lieb. Yay. Thank you everyone for using the coffee fun classic method to uh, contribute to our show. We do appreciate that. And the other way to support the show financially is via Patreon. And we have a new producer since the last episode, John Schroeder. Thank you for becoming a patron. Uh, you want to learn more about Patreon and the coffee fun classic method. Easiest thing for you to do is to head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. Usually I talk much more than today's episode. Yeah. You should join the coffee. <laughs> You'll be glad you did. And we will too. I'm going to have to do Please a lot contribute of audio to dubbing. <laughs> overdubbing. <laughs> I don't know what Jeff needs. Some sort of counseling therapy, speech therapy. You know what the problem is? Lessons. I need to, I haven't had alcohol in, I don't know, maybe Are we 16 sure hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's never, it's never to too early to have a beer. Mm. It is five o'clock. I got a little stitch in my side. (laughs) I'm not doing anything, but I'm stitching my side. This is just the episode where Jeff just falls apart. (laughs) (laughs) I swear, it's like I was out running and I got a stitch. (sighs) I am falling apart. Welcome to the last year. But usually, while running, (laughs) the the last year of the airline pilot guy show. (laughs) The last episode. Of the airline pilot. Yeah, that's more like it. Too much blood in his alcohol system. <laughs> yes, you're right, Lane. <sighs> okay. So Liz is taking the dog out. I don't have to wait for Liz. We can we can continue no. with uh, feedback. What do you think? Let's do okay, it. here we go. Go for it. Captain. Incoming message. All right, is Laura Davis in the uh, live audience today, or is she out there actually working? She is not. She's probably working. Working or sleeping. One or the other. Probably on her way to work, actually. Yeah. Anyway, she sent this one in, and uh, I think I know why. Um, Mm -hmm. The the all-women Air India crew that flew the historic San Francisco Bengaluru flight. I think I got that right. Bengaluru? Bengaluru? That was the caption for this photo. Um, They, let's see, a crew of four women made history as they landed at Kempagauda International Airport with, I still have the stitch, with Air India's longest direct route flight on Monday. Captain Zoya Agarwal said today, we created world history by not only flying over the North Pole, but also by having all women pilots who successfully did it. We are extremely happy and proud to be part of it. This route has saved 10 tons of fuel. Um, a union minister for civil aviation, Hardeep Singh Puri, tweeted, Way to go, girls. Professional, qualified, and confident. The all-women That's cockpit crew. That's a perfect crew. way to address an all-female professional. Way to uh, go, girls. Come on. on crew. I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt because it was Twitter and girls is shorter than women. So, you know, you're uh, limited on your... You could have just ladies? done what everybody ladies, on YouTube yeah. does. Hey, guys. Um, hey, y'all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Professional, qualified, and confident. The all-women crew 
takes off from San Francisco to Bangalore on Air India's flight to fly over the North Pole. Our Nari Shakti achieves a historic first. Air India said this will be the longest commercial flight in the world to be operated by it or any other airline in India. And now I'm trying to figure out what exactly was it that was history making. Um, Haven't there been flights over the North Pole before? I guess. Um, I don't know. Maybe not this. Air India's longest direct flight. Uh, So it's the longest commercial flight in the world to be operated by uh, an Indian airline. Okay. Am I got that right? There you go. And the fact was it was flown by an old lady crew. So that's uh, brilliant. That's just gravy. Right? And Liz also yep. points out that girls and women have the same number of letters. Okay. Um, <laughs> well done. Math is difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> I missed no, the that real reason that Laura Davis sent this <laughs> sent this in though, um, was because she wanted to hear us <laughs> pronounce some of these names and places. These are actually uh, pretty she knows straightforward yeah, those words. weren't too bad that, but yeah. that was her real motivation for it but um yeah thanks a lot laura sorry to disappoint hey, hey, hey jeff i'm really like worried about you right now i don't i don't, I don't know what i've done to give myself a stitch <laughs> maybe standing i'm not used to standing you up have your, you have probably. pulled an <laughs> intercostal <laughs> muscle through laughing too much that's got to be it. I'm enjoying my time so much with you and the live audience that <laughs> yeah, sort of uh, my body just can't handle it. Okay, let's go with that. All right, moving on. Uh, Doug um, says, longtime listener of 10 years. Woo. Love your podcast. Hope you're all well in these uncertain times. My question is about the maximum payload freight carrying ability of your current and X aircraft. When you perform the weekly APG Coffee Fund bullion flight from Atlanta to Geneva, can you load the Mad Dog up to max gross weight just with hold cargo? Gold bricks? Old school, no Bitcoin here. It's a lot easier with Bitcoin. You don't have to worry about any weight whatsoever. Without any passengers or or the passengers required for C of G limits compliance, center of gravity limits compliance. I'm assuming it's a volume issue, not weight. However, I would be interested to hear your thoughts. Keep up the good work. Your show has played a massive role in keeping my aviation dreams alive for commercial pilot license and beyond. And for that, I am so grateful. Dormant and frustrated PPL in Glasgow, Scotland. Kind regards. PPL brackets H. He's a helicopter pilot. Was oh, that what that stands for? The H? Helicopter. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I was I wondering what's he doing that. on this show. I don't know, but you know, clearly go, go to opposing bases. They've got a helicopter pilot there. <laughs> he's bumped his head. Although he doesn't times. fly helicopters anymore. Ah, uh, no, I know the damage was no, done. You're very nice, Doug, uh, but <laughs> you're both Scottish and a helicopter pilot, so I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure Jeff will let you stay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, Liz hey, is saying. I'm, I'm, HR. I'm offended. He can, he can stay. Incoming. <laughs> Um, we get our fair share of that every week for sure. Um, you know, you're, you might as well just address it to Nick, uh, and just skip the whole no, line. That's all right. Thing. That's fine. No. Um, I get enough e- bad emails from Scotland as it is. <laughs> you know, I meant to do the homework on this. I have no idea what the maximum, uh, cargo load would be on the mad dog, nor the Boeing 717, but I can tell you that if it's gold bricks, that I'm sure it would uh, wait out before it um, volume or cubed out because uh, the 
density, the weight density of gold bullion must be pretty high, I would imagine. Although, yeah, I, I'm trying sure. to think uh, what would have happened uh, for us. I'm I, I almost certain there's uh, it's quite you're quite capable of uh, maxing out an aircraft's takeoff weight just in cargo, assuming the cargo is dense enough, mm-hmm. um, without having to put any passengers on. Uh, yeah, definitely. I'm sorry, what? Liz? So it's just a matter of finding the right stuff that doesn't to your right doesn't bulk out the cargo hold before you uh, get to max takeoff weight. I guess is the question a little bit of if you have stuff in the cargo hold, do you need anything on the main deck for? I don't think so. Weight and balancer, yeah. center of gravity. I wouldn't yeah. think so. Either, I would imagine they could uh, range it so that the cargo took care of that envelope. Okay. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. I would think so too. But. but you know, on a on a narrow body airplane such as the one I fly, you know, you're not going to get a lot of cargo weight on it. Uh, now, some of the big jets, like the triple seven and the, I would imagine the A three forty six hundred probably had some pretty impressive cargo carrying capability. In addition to passengers, we did. Uh, the cargo hold on the six hundred was bigger than that of a seven forty seven four hundred. Wow! Uh, so that cargo hold on that uh, big old jumbo, uh, they used to um, quite quickly run out of space before they ran out of weight. We had a it was a very big cargo hold in our aircraft, so we didn't have that problem. That's one of the reasons, um, you know, the cargo boys always loved this the uh, Airbuses because they could shift a lot of cargo in addition to the passengers. There you so, go. Um, Makes yeah. extra money. Um, Absolutely. The C-141 Starlifter that I flew in the Air Force, by the time I was uh, assigned the airplane and trained on it, they were all, um, with a couple of exceptions, um, pretty much all C-141B models. And that was like a 20 to 25 foot extension of the fuselage of the airplane. And, and that was, they tell me the reason for that is that the A model uh, would always cube out or volume out before it um, exceeded the max weight carrying capability of it. So they said, let's go ahead and add this 20 to 25 feet, whatever it is. I used to know the exact feet and inches uh, for the extension. I just don't remember now. Um, but uh, that kind of put it more in line with most or more of the cargo that they tended to carry on that airplane. And so they were able to, you know, weight out and volume out at, at about the same point. So, again, it all has to do with the density of, of the cargo, obviously. But. As far as bullion is concerned, no worries. Uh, not getting a lot of that. And Bitcoin, um, apparently, Liz was telling me that PayPal has some kind of facility for, for all of you out there to send us Bitcoin for your coffee fund contribution. However, I did some research, couldn't figure out how to do that. So if anybody out there knows, let me know, and then everybody can send me Bitcoin or send us Bitcoin. <laughs> we prefer that, actually, because apparently it appreciates in value um, <laughs> quite <rapidly>. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a YouTube channel that I watch sometimes and uh, she's a weightlifter uh, exercise enthusiast. And also I basically, I think she's more of a comedian than anything else. Uh, she talked about the fact that somebody had given her like one Bitcoin was like a $50. Oh yeah. It was like $30 in Bitcoin or $50 in Bitcoin or something. Yeah. Like in 2013 or something. Not that long way ago. Back when. And then she mm-hmm. checked on it and it turns out that that $50, Bitcoin was now well. Well, when she checked on it, it was like eleven thousand, and then just a couple of months after that, it was uh, up close to forty thousand. Like Thirty-four thousand, yeah, exactly. 
Unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? That's amazing. Oh, but I would imagine that it's just as easy for it to go from 40,000 to zero <laughs> in a day's mm. time. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a little volatile. Yeah, a little bit. 1,206 pounds for a cubic foot of gold. Wow. Mm-hmm. I haul boxes comes to the comes to the plate, steps up to the plate Excellent. with um, the density of gold. That's a Yeah, I was just going to make, mention what made my mica says, that one of our podcasting heroes, uh, Leo Laporte, mm. has got a whole bunch of Bitcoin <laughs> on a hard drive that he can't remember, he can't what remember the password. The password. <laughs> you know what? I, I just read an article uh, just a couple of days ago specifically addressing this, that there are many, many people out there uh, and most of them very well healed people. So I guess it's not a big deal that they're missing it. But the fact that there are just literally millions or even billions worth of Bitcoin out there that is unattainable by these people because they've forgotten their passwords. Oh yeah. There was a uh, time times article only a couple of days ago about okay, a guy man. who had had eight goes at guessing his password and he'd been rejected each time. He only had two more goes left, and then he'd be locked out of his account permanently. Forever. And it actually made, made a plea for people who are very clever in cryptography and hackers and things to help him try and work out what his password is. He gave a reward in, with his millions of dollars of, or millions Well, I of think, uh, yeah, I think there was a financial incentive there. Must be, but, uh, yeah. Wow. At least terrified because, you know, two more goes, that's it. And then he loses the lot. Oh, I know. That just must be, I can't imagine. <laughs> can't imagine. Of all the passwords yeah. to lose. Forget. Yeah, or forget. Yeah. Oh, anyway. So thank you, Doug. Yeah, anyway. But by the way, helicopter Doug, uh, sorry about that. I didn't really mean to insult Scotland or helicopter pilots. It just You're comes all naturally. fine people. Yes, he did. Okay, the new. <laughs> what did you just? What did you just say? Are you having a stroke again? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm no worse than you. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> okay, moving on. Ian. You know, I can't actually give any sort of medical help through podcasting. Like you can't this <laughs> stream. You could you could diagnose him and tell him to go to the emergency room if he I does can call nine one one for Jeff and whatever your you local go. emergency number is right. for you. I don't really know. Very kind You'd have again. to tell me first. <laughs> uh, Jeff. My name is Jeff. Thank you. Ah, oh, much better. All right. Uh, item three, Ian writes in, I was listening to APG 455 and I took particular note about your discussion at the 34 minute and 46 second mark. Now, I don't know if that's the podcast or the Very YouTube. Precise. Uh, my company is working on an $80 million pilot project in your home state of Georgia for USA Department of Transportation, ANA Airlines and Suncor to produce biojet fuel at this pilot facility. This is the real deal. This project is to showcase the feasibility of biofuels and is scalable to a multi-billion dollar scale. Wow. I'm not going to mention his actual company. He asked me not to. Um, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's exciting, Ian. Um, good, to, good to hear it. And uh, wish you luck and success with this uh, pilot project here in the state of Georgia. Yeah, I took a look at the website um, 
It's it's uh, it doesn't explain really uh, to me I, in my quick look exactly how they do this, but um, it does sound like they've got a great way of um, you know keeping fuel for aircraft going when the oil runs out. Mm-hmm. So, or when it good. gets to the point where people don't let you use it anymore. So uh, that's true. That also one way or the other. Um, Keeping along the same lines, um, we have some audio feedback from our good friend in Berlin, Tillman. Hello, Liz. Hello, Steph. Hi, guys. This is Private Pilot Tillman calling from Berlin, Germany, with some feedback on going green. You were mentioning an article um, from the Daily Mail a couple episodes ago about this Oxford researcher who's breaking up carbon dioxide to make jet fuel out of it and i actually read the article and got interested in the subject and dug up some high school chemistry and now i'm actually quite excited now this research team of course is not proposing to make water into wine so there's no free lunch but what they're actually doing is they found an energy efficient way to break up carbon dioxide into its components, which are carbon and oxygen. So they're basically doing what plants are also doing. And then what you can do is you can take the carbon and combine it with hydrogen. And if you do that, you get hydrocarbon molecules. And that is the key component of jet fuel. So what they're actually doing is laying the groundwork for synthetic jet fuel, which is a very good way to store energy from renewable sources because for the process you can use um, electricity from solar or from hydroelectric or from wind and that would mean that we could use renewable fuels to produce jet fuel that we then could even mix with existing jet fuel and we could use it in the existing infrastructure and that could be a very very low threshold, elegant way to make the industry go green. And I'm actually quite excited about that. And that's all I had to say today. And I hope to talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. We're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're We're going going green. green. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for the audio feedback, um, Tillman. Hope you don't mind me kind of like um what what's the word like punctuating it yeah kind of editing it editing it a little bit to add editing it. editing it <laughs> editing it I, I did it right that time right you editing did. it editing it okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is just Sorry. going crazy oh. <laughs> I don't know. yes that's what she said <sighs> okay <laughs> um Anything else to say about uh, the renewable jet fuel thing? And uh, no, I, I'm no, very I'm glad, glad that Tillman has actually sort of indicated that it's feasible, which mm-hmm. is brilliant. It is brilliant. Yeah, I did not pull out my like high school or college chemistry to take a look at that, but I will leave that to folks who are oh. um, interested in that process. You, you mean you could have done, but you were just too lazy, uh, Steph? Whatever yes. your name is. so i just had to be looking down at this this is a little well no it's just uh you know i've got other things going on in life right now so i'm glad that there are people who are able to 
divide uh, or, or give their attention to these important matters. Excellent. Oh, Tillman's in the chat room. Yeah. He said he didn't mind me uh, sweetening it up a, a bit with the. Uh, and I think room. we ought to mention that uh, uh, if you're ever in looking for a hotel in Berlin, then Tillman is the man to go and visit. And uh, if you're looking for a beer, then uh, you can go to both the Circus Hotel, uh, the Circus Hostel, and the Circus Brewery, mm-hmm. all of which uh, are fantastic. Why? My poor stein of beer is still a virgin. So I, it has oh not dear. been used? It has not been. Well, oh, no. I've used it, but it just hasn't been filled with Tillman's wonderful beer. You know, it has not been christened. Mine was. The the barman looked at me very strangely when I presented it. Tillman wasn't there at the time. <laughs> yeah, what what do you want me to do with this? Came, I want you to what? fill I it up. I think I got a similar um, reaction the first time. I <laughs> but, I was like, but luckily, look, it says, like, Tillman <laughs> had also given me uh, lots of free beer j- vouchers. So oh. I just said, "Well, will these do?" <laughs> just in case you ran into this issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's funny. Anyway, Tillman, always good to hear from you, and I'm glad that you're with us today in the live audience. And uh, yeah, let's uh, continue moving on here with our feedback. Um, Thomas writes, Nick, did the RAF actually give you the keys to the Phantom when you were 16? Who was that kid? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He doesn't really tell yeah. us what he's referring to here, but... Um, well, I'm assuming one of the pictures from oh the log an earlier plane tail. Uh, you know? Was that 453, the uh, latest RAF form 14, Lock, book, 414, or yep. whatever? Okay, yep. must be it. What is that noise? I can hear a funny noise. Me too. Well, sorry, I've clicked on the video, the YouTube video in this one, and it shouldn't have played through that, and I don't know well, why it did. It did. I was like, yeah, that's, that's very clever. How'd you do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it usually does not. No, I don't um, think I've ever heard any. Because I do that all the time. Audio. Because I usually you. haven't watched things in advance. Is oh. it coming out of a loudspeaker? No. I mean. Well, I mean, oh. yeah, you're. Oh. we hear you on your microphone, but perhaps... Maybe the YouTube audio is playing through your speakers. Play, hit it let again. Let me try this. Let me hold on. Let me try. I, I fixed better. Don't hear a thing. Okay. Okay. That was definitely user error on my oh, part. Okay. <laughs> Some settings got changed. No problem. I'm not we're, sure how they got changed. We're, we're all kind of gone. My apologies. Uh, I, I just autom- automatically assumed that it was coming from Liz because you guys can't hear it. But then when you started, <laughs> what is that sound? I'm thinking, oh, they're hearing it too. <laughs> well, it's so bad. easy to blame. I totally you interrupted this. whatever it was that you were talking about, and I was not listening to that. So, oh, we sorry. were talking about the fact that he must be referring to the plain tale on episode four fifty three when Nick ah, yes. showed some of his uh, photos of himself uh, in front of the F four Phantom, and he did look like he was about sixteen years old. So, I, well, I was sixteen years old. No, you are not. Um, <laughs> He says, but yeah, my U.S. Air Force picks have me looking just as young. Blue skies and 15 knots right down the runway. Uh, This video is where you just say go around and find an alternate blue skies and 15 knots right down the runway. And then he sent a link to a YouTube video. And I. Oh, yeah, this this is is from. This is going to be interesting to talk about. Uh, This is from Flug Snug. 
um, who is a uh, kind of a prominent um, plane spotter video photographer. And if, um, if that's in German, shouldn't it be Flugschnook? Flugschnook. Flugschnook. Yes, you are correct, <laughs> sir. And yeah, I know Tillman. Sorry. Uh, in uh, video clips um, Liz if you want to play the video okay so so the airplane is coming in Um, this is at um, Birmingham England and it's kind of getting bobbling around a little bit it's definitely flying into the wind in a crab although I'm looking specifically at the rudder throughout this entire sequence and the rudder's really not moving at all. And then maybe getting close to the flaring point, it kind of flutters a little bit, like moves about an equal amount in both directions, but not not big movement. And then, okay, now we see a, a, an input, which is appropriate. And, but then the, again, the rudder is neutral right now, but it's still in a crab, nose wheel hits down, and then the airplane just starts heading that direction. And, ooh, it looks like it's now only on the nose wheel and right main gear. And really, the rudder is not doing a lot <laughs> from what I'm seeing. It's completely off the runway, by the way, off to the left of the runway. They decided to go off. Now I see some rudder input right there, right rudder. And guess what happens? The airplane goes to the, oh. moves to the right and back onto the runway. <laughs> and apparently this incident is under investigation over in England and uh, did you guys get the same impression looking at the rudder of this thing uh, the whole way down I'm thinking did, did, does the person did the pilots know that there is a rudder on this airplane well he kicked it straight so yes I'm assuming he does know because he, he straightened the airplane nicely uh, he and he had it well up on the upwind side of the runway because uh, um, those who aren't intimately uh, aware of what occurs you if you come in as this pilot did crab wise so you've got the nose offset into wind you can track right down the middle of the runway and but the moment you straighten the airplane up to land the crosswind will start having an effect it'll sweep you off to the downwind side of the runway and you can disappear off what would have been the right-hand side as we were looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to put it on the ground pretty soon afterwards. But you can overdo this. And he had it right over the, on the upwind side of the runway, the left side of the runway. And he kicked the drift off and put the aircraft down. But he hasn't really settled it on the gear um, very well. It's it's still it's a light aircraft. It's still being blown around a lot. And, of course, you've got this huge fin at the back. Now, the um, once you're on the ground, that fin is going to do what you guys in the States call weather veining, and we call weather cocking here. And it's a bit like the tail feathers on a dart or an arrow. Uh, it'll swing the aircraft into wind. The wind's coming from the left, so the aircraft wants to swing to the left as it weather cocks and tries to straighten into the wind, which causes it to dart off the runway. Now, he doesn't seem to have made a huge effect, uh, but he's also slowing at the same time. So is the aerodynamic effect of the rudder is going to reduce. And until you get the nose wheel nice and firmly on the ground, the nose wheel steering isn't really going to help very much. Um, and I think it's it's a combination of being a bit too far to the left, not being positive enough with the rudder once uh, he realized that he had started weathercocking uh, and the aircraft was trying to turn into wind. 
Um, and basically, yeah, <laughs> losing it off the side of the runway. Yeah, let's watch it one more time. Liz is asking if we want to see it again. Uh, you'll have to unmute yourself if you want to make any comments. So I'm unmuted so I can talk to everybody watching the video. There we go. Nick is unmuted now. Um, and I, I had the same, when I saw this for the first time, Nick, I'm thinking, well, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. It's, I like what he's doing there with staying on the left, the upwind side of the uh, runway. I mean, that's good technique there. Yep. But as you said, I would have done. you don't want to do too much. And maybe he's over there on the left side a little bit too much, especially in this phase. Yes, he's left the aircraft drift a bit too far. But and then you need to you just need to put to it on the ground. Him. Get it on the ground. Yeah. On the ground. Get it yes. all on the ground. You're still <laughs> flying. You're still flying. On the ground. And he's not. And then all of a sudden he gets a maybe a good strong gust of wind right there. And then the left yep. wheels come up. Oh, yeah, and now he, you're like a he wheelbarrow. He doesn't really use enough. He's still got left rudder in as he's touching down. I know. And um, he doesn't <laughs> really reverse those rudders <laughs> smartly enough. Why does he have left rudder in at that point? Well, because he started to drift, so he's gone back uh. into a crab to stop the aircraft from drifting further to the right, I think, which needs left rudder. Yeah. And then the airplane touches down. He should have reversed the rudder straight away. Yeah. But uh, I don't think he gets it in quick enough. I think... He, they need more practice with crosswind landings. <laughs> well, to be fair, it looked a pretty fearful day. Oh, yeah. It, it did a horrible day. Yeah, it looked horrible. You're right. Uh, and it's so easy for us to to judge and critique this person. <laughs> yes, it's true. Just I should be at the end of the runway with my scoreboards held up, you know, <laughs> yeah, 5.6. Two. Yeah. <laughs> two. Oh, Steph's good, a tough marker. Well, I mean, it was good recovery there, you know, but they were in the grass. They were not in the runway. Yeah, I mean, they went no, completely right. off the runway. Completely off the runway, but they got it back on. Yeah. Luckily, it was smooth at that point on the uh, non-paved surface or non. Yeah, I don't think they did prepared. a lot of damage. I don't know that that wind coming from the left and that left wing coming up made me quite nervous there for a second. Yeah, it was like a wheelbarrow going down <laughs> the runway there, or yeah. off the runway. But you know what we always say here: you can always, you can always go around. right? You well, can. not always, but you most can. of the time. I, I wouldn't have recommended it from the position he ended up. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's true. Pointing off down the side of the runway and at going to the grass is not an ideal place to start a go round. <laughs> I think that actually, uh, if I remember correctly, in this YouTube um, link um, on the video itself, somewhere in the narrative or whatever, it talks about the fact that this was not his first attempt at landing. That that did some kind of a spectacular. Glow, uh, go around <laughs> before this video that we watched Ooh. here today. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, maybe maybe just not the airport you want to be landing at that day. Then no. Yeah, I hear that uh, it is notorious in strong winds, sadly. Uh, but that's why all the yes, the spotters are up there with their video cameras. Yeah, there's a reason. They know they're going to see <laughs> I did, something. Exciting. I did notice that there's not a lot of like like edge lighting or anything like that there, and that's probably smart on the. <laughs> it, was, it was all taken out <laughs> from previous uh, <laughs> yeah, <landers. laughs> Micah is yeah, asking what um, right. Liz. I'm sorry. What kind of aircraft was that? Um, I'm not absolutely sure. Well, it's what I would have called an HS748, but. I, th I think it's probably a later version of it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, ATP, yeah, that sounds about right. I'm not sure. Anybody out there um, 
Well, AT, uh, well, all the ATPs that I've seen are high wing, right? Maybe they make a, a low wing. No, oh. it's a it's okay. an ATP. It is okay. Is it very good? No. So, w- which model ATP stuff? I don't know. Come on, you sounded so confident there for a minute. What did you say, Nick? HS seven four eight. HS seven four eight. Yeah, uh, it's it's it evolved into the ATP. Uh, or, or as we in the Air Force would have called it, an Andover. That was the Air Force. Like the uh, ATR name for it. is high wing, but the ATP oh, is low wing. I'm getting my my uh, letters all mixed up, which is understandable based on my condition today. Have you had a stroke today? I don't know uh, if I have. Yeah, a, we, I had we, a uh, <laughs> is are, we use is them my face like transports? <laughs> is my it looks pretty much even, right? I don't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fast. Uh, do Fast. I have any any drool? You're not dribbling yet. No, no, no more than usual. Oh, and what is it? I, I should be able to smile, right? Thank you. Okay, good. No stroke. That's the best yes. you can do. That's <laughs> the best I can do. Yeah, so that is the best I can we, do. Uh, <clears throat> we used to call them the Andover in the Air Force, and they were a light sort of transport cargo aircraft. So the famous call was, I'm in an Andover with a Land Rover over Dover over. Oh, that's cute. Very clever. Yeah. Nice. Show title right there. Okay. Um, moving on. Oh, got some uh, audio feedback from Swansea Mark. So without further ado, let's hear from Swansea Mark. Hello, APG crew, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana, Miami Rick, and Liz. Uh, it's Swansea Mark here, flying cardiologist at the Acme Aviation Authority. Um, I've got a question for you about reduced thrust or flex takeoffs. Um, The reason for asking you this question is that somebody asked me a question the other day. Uh, They said, have you ever been frightened when you were flying? And uh, first of all, I said no. But then thinking back, I remembered an event back in 1980 when I was on my way as a young medical student to work in a remote hospital in South Africa for a few weeks. In those days, the uh, the 747s couldn't make it from London to Johannesburg non-stop, so we'd landed in Nairobi to refuel. Uh, A few years previously, uh, a Lufthansa 747 crashed in Nairobi on uh, takeoff, and I guess that was at the back of my mind. Now, as a confirmed AV geek for about uh, the last 50-odd years, I've been timing takeoff rolls whenever I go flying. So typically in a narrow body, uh, you might be looking at 30 to 40 seconds to get airborne. And maybe in a wide body, you might be looking at 50 or sometimes up to a minute to actually get off the ground. Anyway, coming out of uh, Nairobi that morning back in 1980, as uh, the second hand of my watch went past 1 minute 10 seconds, I was uh, getting increasingly anxious and just about to take up the brace position. And we finally lifted off at about 1 minute 20, 1 minute 25. Uh, Anyway, those were the good old days when you could go up to the uh, flight deck for a visit. So later on in the flight, I was up uh, talking to the crew and I asked them about this, to me, very scary takeoff from Nairobi. And that was the first time at anyone had explained to me this idea that you might take off at less than full power. And I know it's something you've talked about on the show before, 
And you've explained, and I think this applies to Airbus and to Boeing, that the way you uh, achieve this reduced takeoff thrust is by telling the aeroplane that the outside temperature is actually something different from what it actually is, typically much higher. Sometimes a temperature that's even higher than you might find on the ground in the Sahara in the middle of summer. And my question to you is, why uh, Why on earth would you do that? Why did all the clever people uh, at Airbus and Boeing, when they were making their flight management systems, not produce a computer where you just told it that you wanted 90% thrust or 93% thrust for the takeoff, rather than this weird business about pretending that the temperature's 48 degrees centigrade when it's actually 12 degrees and uh, trying to fool the computer. It's obviously got the potential for causing problems um, because we saw that with the um, the incident in Belfast back in 2017 when a wrongly uh, programmed uh, outside temperature caused, uh, caused the aircraft to uh, lift off very late. So uh, anyway, look forward to hearing your uh, your thoughts on that and whether you understand why uh, on earth somebody would make you have to put imaginary data into a computer to get the aeroplane to perform the right way. Thanks again for all your shows. Brilliant as ever. They've been keeping me company on my lockdown runs on the beach in sunny Swansea. You take care and I hope to meet you all at a, an APG meetup before too long. All the best. Swansea Mark, over and out. Thank you, Swansea Mark. You know what? I have to admit that I have wondered the same thing regarding why not just make it 80% or 90% or 93% or whatever. But I think now if Rick were here with us today, he'd probably have all the uh, scientific and engineering data uh, when it comes to why we do it the way we do. But the, uh, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here. I think it might have something to do with the fact that when an air, when a, an airplane certified, uh, they do all, they have all this data that they've come up with regarding performance from the engine at certain temperatures. And they have this huge amount of data regarding all that. And so it's just easier for them to say, let's just pretend that the outside air temperature is 45 degrees uh, Celsius. And then the engine will be tricked into using a lower power setting, but still retain all the engineering and performance data that we paid the uh, uh, the manufacturer to come up with. So we have all that data already. So I don't know. Am I even close to the truth there, Nick? Do you know uh, what the... I, I don't know, Jeff. I, I think the origins, uh, according to my research, go back to Laker Airways, uh, an airline that those of us in the UK are very familiar with, uh, if you're old enough. Uh, Freddie Lake uh, started up a, a low-cost transatlantic airline. Um, and uh, he um, had an airline with quite a few aircraft. And according to his memoir, uh, he was the guy that dreamt up the idea of uh, reducing uh, engine wear and tear by uh, introducing uh, reduced thrust takeoffs. So he did it on the BAC-111 uh, initially uh, and reduced the thrust on those. Uh, he did it in, uh, obviously, consultation with Rolls-Royce since Rolls-Royce built the Spey engine 
that the um, BAC-111 used, funnily enough, the same engine that was in my Phantom. Um, and uh, the Rolls-Royce are terribly impressed uh, that they uh, have managed to get such uh, fantastic results uh, that when they bought the Laker aircraft in for engine servicing, the Rolls-Royce guys were saying these engines are in fantastic condition. Uh, and uh, they started to think about um, doing it uh, elsewhere or promoting this technique. Um, of course, in the early days, uh, it would have they wouldn't have had any way to do it except to exactly as you say to trick the engine into reducing its thrust uh, either that or manually set a thrust limit which is obvious limitations um, so uh, I think that when they started thinking of the idea they thought of a parameter that they could change that would get the desired stable amount of thrust they want out of the engine and the easiest one the engineers could come up with was uh, reducing the uh, air temperature indication that the FedEx worked with. Um, and I think really having set that uh, in and got it authorized and got it cleared by all the authorities and the engine manufacturers, um, they said, well, why do we change it? Why do we now want to move things on when we've got a perfectly understood and uh, stable way of setting it. It doesn't really matter which system uh, of reducing engine thrust you use. If you change the engine thrust, uh, any system has the potential of the pilot putting in the wrong numbers. So yes, there have been some errors made calculating what temperature to set. But if you said, well, let's reduce some other parameter, you're still going to have to do a calculation. There's still just as much likelihood that someone's going to make an error and you can end up with too much uh, thrust being reduced. I personally think in future um, it might be automatically done through the aircraft computers such that you just air enter the aircraft weight correctly, hopefully, and yeah. everything is taken <clears throat> care of for you. But, but we haven't quite got there yet. But that that's my guess at this. I don't know for sure. Or how about a system where the airplane weighs itself and it knows exactly what its ah, weight that is and it's can't the 747 do that i think the actually i think they made a model of it or or um had a uh, as an option on the tristar the l1011 uh that uh, apparently weight transducers in the undercarriage yeah and uh, yeah the the uh I, I think i have this right and i think the official reasoning for taking it off the airplane was that it was just uh wasn't worth i guess it added some extra weight and it uh, wasn't worth you know the extra weight the performance penalty or whatever else but i think probably really what happened is they started realizing that the airplanes were a lot heavier than than they yes had I, yeah, I think <laughs> let's talk, let's i think that's one off. of the main reasons we don't really want to know how much we weigh thank you because then we'll have to take all this cargo off exactly there's a whole lot that i don't understand about this because i don't fly these types of aircraft with these types of engines and it's not um something i deal with but um I, and this is just be thinking back to stuff that Rick has talked about in the past. And I'm sure he will be happy to clear all of this up for us, but there's a difference between there's different ways to um, basically uh, set reduced power or, or simulated reduced power for, for takeoffs. One is derating and then the other one is assumed temperature. Um, 
And I don't know if you guys can talk about the difference between the the two of them. Basically, one is, you know, you take the, you, you tell the aircraft that the outside temperature is much higher, so it's going to use um, a lower power setting. The other one is that you convince the engine that it has less power to begin with, basically, correct? Or I might be explaining I, I'm that I'm not going there. But, I'm waiting for yeah, Rick. Yeah, I, I think Rick will, Rick will clear that up for us. But, Rick. but oh, um, yeah, yeah uh, there's, there you go. So IHALBOX is getting into uh, some of this, but basically you get, you get, there's different limitations um, based on which method you use. So that might have something to do with why you would for want to use one of those methods over the other. has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea such an instrument is the turbo encabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes. <laughs> yeah. There we go. That's the official um, explanation like it. for that. I have no idea. I think there is. So let's keep that one in the uh, the feedback because we definitely did not answer Swansea Mart. Well, oh, but does it? But that means that Rick is going to have to answer Nick, it. Or Nick had a very nice like. I liked Nick's answer. I thought it was very thorough. Well, that, that's why it was initially started that way. And I think having established it, you know, the airline industry is like if you find something that works, mm-hmm. people are loath to change it because that means you have to. Uh, recertify a, a new procedure mm. and get it cleared by everyone. It's expensive. So having established one way of doing it, everyone's just carried on doing it that way. I think there are airplanes, and maybe the 777 is one of them, and probably more, maybe the 340 did this as well, Nick, where you can you can kind of do a combination of the assumed temperature and D-rate, have like a D-rate and yeah, assumed temperature. Yeah, we could D-rate uh, in the 340, uh, and we could flex the takeoff as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't do the two combined, um, but uh, um, until later on, uh, when I started flying the 330, I'm pretty sure we derated at some point, but that derate never came into effect during the takeoff roll. We would flex for the takeoff roll and at, a, at an altitude of a couple of thousand feet or whatever, after takeoff, derate would come into effect. And you could uh, change the D-rate as well as you went up the climb. If you found that the, the aircraft was climbing poorly, you could take the D-rate out and then you put it back in again. Mm. The, the idea is to basically um, not use full power uh, because that eats engine life. If you can use a lower power setting, uh, you might take longer to get to height or whatever. But as far as the engine is concerned, that is saving an enormous amount of cost uh, for maintenance and for engine life. So at any time, if you can reduce the amount of thrust you're using, you're going to make it safer. And of course, the argument for me, I always used, when I was in the military, use full power for everything. We, we never even dreamt of using less than full power for a takeoff. Um, it was explained to me that the vast majority of engine failures occur when you apply full power. If you can do a takeoff with less than full power, then you're less likely to suffer an engine failure during the takeoff roll, as well as uh, preserving engine life. Well, I'm old school. I think we should always use full power and top up the uh, gas tanks, always. Yes, full absolutely. Full, full gas, and full if that, power. If that means full not being able to, full pay, of course. <laughs> Uh, if that means not being able to haul passengers or cargo and you have to, you know, do maintenance on the engines twice as much, well, so be it. 
Yeah, I know. I think that's <laughs> very wonderful. efficient. Yeah. Very and efficient. and and you, your union will back you to the hilt. Oh yeah, I'm sure they're probably making note of this time mark right, right now, now yeah, yeah. to to present to the company <laughs> for my dismissal. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. Yes, Liz says you hope. <laughs> how do I how do I get fired but still receive full pay for the next three years? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, good luck when if you, you can work out, that out. <laughs> yeah, your airline's basically going to run out of pilots very quickly if you could work that out. Liz, is it time for the best part of the show yet? It. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> it is now time. Save us, Liz. For the yeah. best part of the show, which of course means it's time for this week's installment of the Old Pilots Plane Tales. The Old Pilots Plane Tales, The Deutschendorfs. We recently mourned the loss of the very first pilot to achieve supersonic flight, General Chuck Yeager, who took the Bell X-1 into the then unknown region beyond the sound barrier. Whilst his feat of skill and bravery was a remarkable milestone, it was very soon left behind as the aerospace industry was forging ahead at a quite incredible pace. The end of the Second World War was only two years old when the victorious Allies began to vie with each other for dominance on the world stage. On one side was the Soviet Union with their allies in the Eastern Bloc, and on the other was the United States with its friends within the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO. This Cold War, named so as the superpowers only fought in proxy wars, supporting opposing sides in regional conflicts like the Korean and Vietnamese wars, started in 1947 and brought about an arms race like no other. Enormous efforts were being made on both sides to take advantage of the threat inherent in the new generation of weapons, the thermonuclear bomb. Vastly more powerful than earlier pure fission weapons that were used to destroy Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the number and power of this second-generation version available to the antagonists were enough to guarantee destruction on a global scale. This led to the adoption of the MAD doctrine, mutually assured destruction, a strategy of deterrence that, in the event of nuclear war, would assure the complete annihilation of both the aggressor and the defender by first and second strikes. In order to present a credible threat, both sides were forced into an arms race so that neither could launch an attack and then survive the retaliation. The first intercontinental ballistic missile wouldn't become operational in the United States until the Atlas missile came into service at the end of 1959, a few months behind the Soviet R-7 version. Up until that point, both countries depended entirely on airborne delivery of nuclear weapons from a variety of aircraft, which were becoming ever more capable. In 1956, the latest and most impressive by far 
was the Convair B-58 Hustler. Convair had beaten off considerable competition to have its bid for GBO-2, the Generalized Bomber Study issued by the Air Research and Development Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, accepted. Boeing, Curtis, Douglas, Martin and North American Aviation had all made submissions that were considered straightforward, unambitious and expensive. Convair, on the other hand, had proposed a radical four-engined, delta-winged, supersonic aircraft capable of stratospheric flight. It was to be the United States Air Force's first true supersonic bomber, and only two years after man had broken the sound barrier. There was considerable scepticism in command that the propulsion systems and material science required for this ambitious aircraft weren't advanced enough, but Convey was given the go-ahead, and in 1952 they were chosen to meet the new SAB-51, Supersonic Aircraft Bomber Standards. The aircraft was designated the B-58, and initially the task was to build two prototypes, 11 pre-production aircraft and 31 mission pods, including a free-fall bomb pod, a rocket-propelled controllable bomb pod, a reconnaissance and an electronic reconnaissance pod. The design had altered slightly from the initial proposal, which had been a three-engined version, as the B-58 now had four pylon-mounted after-burning GEJ-79s, which hung beneath the 60-degree-swept large delta wing. To protect vital components against the heat generated at high speed, as well as the crew compartment, the wheel wells and electronics bay were pressurised and air-conditioned. The design was also the first to make extensive use of aluminium honeycomb panels, which bonded outer and inner skins of aluminium and stainless steel to a honeycomb of metal or fibreglass. In addition, other features made the aircraft groundbreaking, such as the advanced wing design that was extremely thin to aid supersonic flight, and the structure was very light, making up only 14% of the aircraft's gross weight. The engine inlets were also revolutionary, featuring moving conical spikes which travelled forwards at high speeds, minimising the annular gap and increasing the engine efficiency. With a view to surviving high-level and high-supersonic ejections, the three crew members were also given a novel escape system which could enclose the occupant in a protective clamshell, allowing them to survive ejection. The system would enclose the pilot along with his control column and a separate oxygen system that would allow him to stay in control and protected from the elements should the aircraft be damaged. He would also be ready for an immediate ejection. This system was tested using live animals, the story of which is in my earlier tale, Who Killed Yogi Bear? The crew sat in individual cockpits, laid out in tandem, and they were very advanced for their time. The controls were electronic and the dashboards wrapped around the occupant, with audio warnings piped into their helmets. They even had the very first example of voice warnings, 
known by F-18 pilots around the world as Bitching Betty, the Hustler Cruise had the more glamorous voice of actress and singer Joan Elms, who they dubbed Sexy Sally. She recorded 20 voice clips that were played from tapes on board the Hustler's warning system, telling them of failures, engine ice and weapons release, etc. The weapon systems were also very advanced. The navigation equipment was based around a Sperry inertial reference system which was tied in to an automatic Astro Star Tracker and a Doppler radar for ground speed and wind data. A search radar provided bomb release data and the combined arrangement was considered to be ten times more accurate than anything that had gone before. For defence, the Hustler had a remotely controlled, automated, radar-laid 20mm rotary cannon mounted in the tail and fired by the defensive systems operator. Offensively, the Navigator and Bombardier had a single nuclear weapon held in a large, streamlined pod slung on the belly, which also doubled as an external fuel tank. In later versions, the fuel section could be jettisoned independently of the weapon. The Hustler was not an easy aircraft to fly. Its highly swept wings were designed to accommodate a top speed of Mach 2, but this had the drawback of requiring a much higher angle of attack than normal at lower speeds. For takeoff, the pilot needed to accelerate to over 230 miles an hour at combat weights, and then rotate the aircraft to 14 degrees of pitch just to get airborne. Landing speeds were equally high, and specially designed landing gear with tyres at very high pressure and capable of extremely high rotation speeds were required. An angle of attack beyond 17 degrees would result in a pitch-up, which could easily develop into a spin, and should this happen below 15,000 feet, then recovery was very unlikely. Its stall characteristics were also dangerous, as in a stall it remained nose-high, and unless large amounts of power were applied, a rapid rate of descent ensued. Fuel stacking was also a problem, where movement of fuel within the tanks would occur during acceleration or deceleration that could cause a sudden change in the aircraft's centre of gravity, causing an abrupt pitch-up or roll and lead to loss of control. Early in the aircraft's life, 26 airframes would be lost to accidents. Despite its drawbacks, the Hustler was a formidable bomber, and it set numerous world records. It rattled windows around America, in a country that was a lot more forgiving in those days, as it set coast-to-coast records, and it flew the longest supersonic flight in history when Major Sidney Kubech flew from Tokyo to London in 8 hours, 35 minutes and 20.4 seconds. His aircraft, named Greased Lightning, needed to refuel in flight five times, but the record he set that day still stands. On a single day in early 1961, this remarkable aircraft set six international speed and payload records on a single flight, breaking five records previously held by the Soviet Union. 
On this day, one crew flew their B-58 over a 2,000-kilometer course, about 1,200 miles, carrying a two-ton payload at the world record speed of over 1,060 miles per hour, roughly twice the speed of the previous record holder, the Soviet Tu-104 Camel. The same crew went on to fly their aircraft, named Untouchable, to beat records for a one-ton payload and for a clean aircraft as well. For this feat, the pilot, Major Henry John Deutschendorf Sr., along with his bombardier and defence systems operator, would be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Before I talk more about Major Deutschendorf, I want to emphasise what a step-up in technology the Hustler represented. From Chuck Yeager's initial achievement in 1947, by 1949 Convair had submitted its initial bid, which would be accepted in 1952 and achieve its first flight in 1956. So much had to be learned in that time. The aerodynamics of supersonic flight, the construction materials that would be required, the engines that could power it, were only part of the technological challenges that would be faced. It was truly a remarkable effort. The pilots that were chosen to fly this tricky Mach 2 70,000-foot capable aircraft that could climb at over 45,000 feet a minute were highly skilled, and Lieutenant Colonel Henry John, Dutch to his friends, Deutschendorf, was one of them. Henry John had completed three years of high school and was working as an assistant janitor when the Second World War was looming, and he made a very difficult decision for someone with a religious upbringing of a Mennonite. He joined the army. Not only was his decision a major break with the Mennonite tradition, but because he was an intelligent, fit and strong young man, his help on the family farm would be missed. His enlistment papers stated that he was a farmhand, but the military provided Dutch, who had excellent eyesight, intelligence and outstanding reflexes, the opportunity to learn to fly. He would spend most of the war as a flight instructor on B-17s and B-29s, but his active service earned him campaign medals for Europe, Africa and the Middle East, and he was awarded the Air Medal for Individual Heroism, an outstanding achievement. He served in Korea before he was given the opportunity to fly the remarkable B-58. After 26 years of service, he would retire, but then would sadly be taken from his family by a massive heart attack at only 61 years of age. During its service, the Hustler would win the Blerio, Thompson, McKay, Bendix and Harmon trophies, but the aircraft that he flew to world record fame would also have a short and somewhat checkered life. For the 1961 Paris Air Show, a hustler made the first supersonic transatlantic crossing between New York and Paris in a mere 3 hours and 14 minutes at a speed of 1,753 miles per hour. Sadly, on the return home flight, the aircraft named Firefly would crash a mere 5 miles into their journey, killing all three crew members. 
Only four years later, again at the Paris Air Show, another hustler would crash when the aircraft landed short of the runway, striking the instrument approach aerials and bursting into flame, killing all on board. They had arrived late for the start of the show, with a lot of fuel remaining. As the flying display was about to begin, they were offered the option of diverting or making an immediate overweight landing. The commander chose the latter, with tragic consequences. Such misfortune was also reflected in the life of the B-58 pilot I chose to title this story. Not only did Dutch Deutschendorf pass away at an early age, but his family would suffer other tragedies. His son, Henry John Deutschendorf Jr., which many of you will know as the American songwriter, record producer, actor, activist, humanitarian and wonderful country singer John Denver, would also have his life cut short. John Denver's music has long been a favourite of mine and his songs, in particular, Leaving on a Jet Plane and Back Home Again, have provided a soundtrack to my life. Like his father, John would also become a pilot and would work closely with NASA, becoming dedicated to America's work in space. He was killed flying one of Bert Rutan's experimental long, easy, light aircraft when his newly acquired machine's engine failed due to fuel starvation. The NTSB findings indicated that in his efforts to reach the fuel selector valve, To resupply the engine, he had to twist hard in his seat, and in doing so, he inadvertently pressed the rudder pedals, yawing the aircraft into a spin. He was too low to recover. You may not have realised it, but along with the wonderful music of John Denver, there were more artistic Deutschendorfs, and tragically more sorrow would follow. Two of John Denver's nephews, William and Henry John Deutschendorf II, known as Will and Hank, performed in Ghostbusters 2 when they took turns playing the part of Baby Oscar. They would go on to form the West Coast Martial Arts Academy, but Hank would suffer from a combination of bipolar and schizophrenic disorders that caused him severe depression. He would grow up as a young man who was upbeat, healthy, witty, kind, outgoing, and was always ready to stand up for people. Sadly, the medication he took curbed the delusions but didn't stop the voices, and the side effects took a toll. He would eventually take his own life. The Hustler would serve until early 1970, when its role was taken over by the new FB-111A. Only 116 would be made, and over 22% of those airframes would be lost to accidents. It was an expensive aircraft to both build and operate. The B-58 program cost over $21 billion in today's money and the Hustler was three times as expensive to operate as the B-52 Stratofortress. However, in the annals of the steely-eyed rocket men that flew it, 
the hustler would stand head and shoulders above others as one of the most remarkable aircraft the United States would ever build. Another great plane tale from the old pilot. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I, I have to thank Micah, really, because uh, it was his idea, uh, and uh, he knew of the relationship between uh, the Deutschendorfs uh, with uh, John Denver, because his amazing musical knowledge, and The Hustler. Um, and uh, I just love that you can bring a story like that together and tell a bit about an airplane and then link it to someone who was so famous and someone who I grew up listening to his music. I dated to his music. Uh, my wife introduced me to it. Uh, it became a very big part of my life. And I was uh, so sad when uh, he killed himself. It was just an absolute tragedy. Sunshine. On my shoulder. Or Absolutely. Like that, right? uh, so, uh, yeah, and his song is that. I'm not sure. Um, but he, he just so many classics. I think that's a John Denver uh, song, isn't was, it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, I was singing, listening to him today uh, while I was uh, um, doing the chapters version of the... Well, when we were uh, playing this plain tale, I, I mentioned to Nick, I said, I think I understand why you chose this particular style of music for the plain tale here because it reminded me a lot of that john denver style yeah very yeah. apropos yeah thanks yeah you, ha you have to admire a family like that because not only did they produce a pilot of, of amazing ability um you produced uh singers and actors um but uh yeah i think i can look back on the music that john denver produced and said it was a very important influence in my life so was this, um, did you say that the airplane was created in 1958? Well, the, uh, the, the initial uh, so yes. acceptance of so yes. their design for the, to fulfill, uh, yes, that, that began then. So, so many great things um, created in 1958. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 47, they broke the sound barrier. <laughs> Two years later, their effort, their design for this aircraft was accepted, but it didn't actually fly till like the mid 50s, 56, 57. Ah. Uh, and uh, most of the world records that they attempted, uh, they didn't do it until the early 60s because, like a lot of aircraft, they didn't want to reveal the aircraft's um, true performance capability. Yeah. Early 60s. But highly I mean, overrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 58, though. But I'm, it was an amazing year. Yeah, good year. Uh, yeah. Okay, not as good as 54, was it, was but it, there you go. Was it a good year? Huh? I think they were both good years. 58 was the best that I can think of. I mean, 58, 54. 51? 82? Nah. I don't know. <laughs> is, that your, Absolutely. is that your year, Liz? 51? Yep, she's giving me a thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was born. Yeah, but it, it was a, all, all the best things were made around there. We know, um, <laughs> and if you think about it, uh, this really was for me. It, it was the equivalent in that era for those engineers of the space race of building uh, that amazing, um, you know, technological wonder that put men on the moon. Mm -hmm. This was the start of it. Those yeah. engineers, these engineers 
were absolutely at the forefront of the technological advance that America was making at the time. Uh, absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. Really. Well, thank you, Micah, for uh, suggesting this plain tale topic. And also, thank you for my birthday card. I um, am remiss and not thanking you for that earlier, but um, in the um, mail quarantining system in my current residence, um, things are delayed a bit. So I, I just got that a few days ago. So thank you, Micah. I appreciate it. You're a very thoughtful person. Okay. Um, I think we should continue with some more feedback. Certainly. What do you think? Yeah, Steph's getting bored. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm sorry. I, there's so much going on right now. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably going to use I, that I whole work, work excuse thing. It's yeah, has work, something to work, do with work. Work, work, yeah. work, work. It's work-related. <laughs> vague, vague work-related things. Like every time I see her in person, she just starts like drifting off and I said, work? Goes, yeah. I feel like Thinking that about recently. Work. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to not being so mired in work <laughs> stuff. Well, maybe... This feedback will take your mind away from work stuff. Let's do it. Um, Richard writes in, he says, G'day, APG crew. It's Rich from Singapore. I just want to say thanks for my Acme t-shirt. Feeling part of the community, I wore it three days in a row until my wife told me to change it or she would divorce me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now living in a bachelor apartment in town. That's sad to hear. Sorry, Richard. Oh, wait, he says joking. Ha ha. (laughs) <laughs> love That's the shirt. Nice Thanks. color he chose. Yeah. I That's think, uh, Liz, if I think I have an overlay, uh, of, uh, Mr. Richard and said wife who is threatening divorcing him. And, uh, so she's trying to find it right now and we're going to pl- put, we're going to put it on the screen. There it is. Look at him. It, is that a good looking guy wearing that great looking guy? And look t-shirt. at that fantastic shirt. I know. Yeah. Great, great choice of colors, too. That nice green color. He's even got an aviation-related mask by the looks of it. Yeah, things going on there. And look at that very, very um, understanding and patient wife. In the, it uh, seems that she has not divorced him yet. So that's good. We're glad. So we're glad. uh, We're we're sending uh, our wishes. Flamingos. Uh, Yeah. So uh, that's very good. I'm trying to work out what is on your hat, old chap. Uh, It says. I I'm think trying to look at it. Is it RF, I think, or I can't tell for Could sure. Could be RF, yes. RF or BF or 3F, I don't know. Richard. And is that uh, supposed to be an A340 behind you? Roger Federer? Is that what you said, Liz? <laughs> Roger Federer. Oh, tennis oh, player could hat. Be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah could, could be. be. Is that his, uh, like how he signs his initials? Ah, that's yeah. a brand thing, mm. Liz says. He's she a very fancy Swiss life. Mm, she does. She does. Jilly would know that. She said. Uh, I was just about to say. Yeah, Jilly knows so much yeah. more. Than Nick, Nick has not been paying. Attention. She's already <laughs> gone to bed. <laughs> oh, no. She's a smart woman. Yeah. Um. So, Rich or Richard? No, he goes by Rich. Thank you so much. We are enriched by having you as part of our APG community. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sending in those photos. Hey, okay. if you're out there listening and you have a. Uh, an APG or an Acme shirt, um, send a picture of you wearing it yeah, before you get divorced. You know what? That would Yeah, but yeah. you have to live somewhere nice like Singapore. Well, so, so there's this thing where um, 
like in the um, parachutist magazine, people take a copy of the magazine with them and on their travels and fun places and just, you know, show where they're reading things around the world. This could be like a fun little segment, you know, where are you wearing your APG shirt in the world? Yeah. Lucas Diamond, uh, Liz is um, mentioning that Lucas Diamond, the flying Kiwi sent in a photo of him wearing, I think it was a uh, sweatshirt on in that case or a hoodie or something like that, that he had ordered. And uh, so, yeah, not the first time that we've had uh, APG community members wearing, sending in pictures of them wearing their merch. And, uh, but it'd be kind of fun if you uh, are out there and you have ordered one in the past, take a, a selfie and send it in. Absolutely. Be a lot of fun. We'll put it on the show. Show your especially since we're pick. so limited in our travel abilities right now. It'll right. be interesting to yeah. you know if you've got if you I mean interesting places or just mundane places, we want to know where you are. Oh wait, Steph wants you to make sure so I we're live not gonna in a mundane place. I'm 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 just making that very we're, clear. we're not going to accept <laughs> any we're not gonna accept any photos unless they're of somebody skydiving wearing an acme. Air t-shirt. Mm, I might have to figure out how to make that happen. <laughs> You're gonna have to wait a few weeks to figure that out. Okay. Well, we're counting on it. Okay. Okay. Uh, thanks, Richard, for sending that in. Uh, Richard sent, has sent us in feedback in the past, and uh, but this is our favorite <laughs> because it's wearing our our shirt. Um. Okay. Uh, Texas Charlie. Howdy, guys and gals. Sorry that lately I haven't regaled you with my weekly emails. We had a touch of COVID dance through my immediate family and my fellow management staff. At work, those who could have been pulling double duty. Everyone's doing fine and waiting for our sense of smell and taste to return. But on to what's important, flying and remembering what it was like before COVID. (laughs) As a child of expat parents living in Venezuela, I cut my aviation teeth in the 1960s as a passenger of an Avenza DC-3. With those as my formative years in aviation, it's my opinion that anyone who has only experienced flying in a pressurized metal tube cruising at 35,000 feet has no real understanding of what flying is really all about. The attached video was taken from a DC-3 Servavenza, a daughter airline of Avenza, flying over the Gran Sabana region of Venezuela. The waterfall seen in the second half of the video is Angel Falls, the world's highest uninterrupted waterfall. I took a similar flight in 72 or 73 and a flight to Kanaima, a jungle resort located in Kanaima National Park and located on a lagoon surrounded by a magnificent or surrounded by magnificent waterfalls. And I got to tell you, those Avenza pilots liked flying low and tight. Our view of the falls was much, much closer. So here's a toast to getting back to normal. And when we can get away with it, flying low and tight. After all, as Manfred Mann once sang, but mama, that's where the fun is. (laughs) That's a great, pardon me? Yeah, video. Let's uh, go ahead and play the video, Liz. Good idea. Okay, so um, I've unmuted, and we're watching the video of this uh, Servavenza DC-3 flight. And in the background, uh, we see the amazing waterfall, the Angel Falls. It looks like my washing machine. Does it? Oh, you should probably have that checked. Uh, you yeah. should probably fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the water is supposed to be cascading down the outside of your washing machine like that. Well, it does it every time we use it. 
Do you hear this music playing while it's happening? What? Your washing machine <laughs> plays music. Also. <laughs> then yeah, I'd have like actually. I'd worry. The, the end of the from, cycle. From, like, Japan, where you know you can play music while you're. <laughs> so, we're seeing video of this, and we'll have this link in the show notes. Amazing footage of Angel Falls. It almost, it almost makes me dizzy looking at it. It's amazing. I, I, I hope that. Someday, before I pass on to the next life. Is there a Russian nuclear submarine somewhere I, in those falls? Oh, yeah. I, it kind of did sound very, like... Very, well, <laughs> Venezuela is kind of a communist country, right? So I'm assuming... Well, I suddenly was, was thinking Red October, and I thought, ah, <laughs> oh, that's where they put it. Yeah. Um, interesting choice of music, I agree. Um, I like it, though. It was very good. Yeah. Uh, it was stunning. Absolutely stunning, to be truthful. It fabulous. You know... That um, Angel Falls has a uh, an aviation connection. Did you know that? Does it? I did not know this. I okay. did a little bit of research. Go on, then. And uh, let's see. This guy named Jimmy Angel. And guess what? They named Angel Falls after a pilot, an American avi- an American aviator, Jimmy Angel. Wow. Um, they were not known to the outside world until American aviator Jimmy Angel, following directions given by Cordona, uh, another um, explorer, flew over them on 16 November 1933 on a flight while he was searching for a valuable ore bed, O-R-E bed. Returning on 9 October 1937, Angel tried to land his flamingo <laughs> monoplane. What's the matter? Sorry, I'm very glad you spelt that. Because I was just thinking, an ore bed? Valuable ore bed. Or, yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's always those, you know, it's always those treasure seekers that find yeah. these interesting things. They never seem to find the treasure they're searching for, but, you know. I was thinking of a completely different ore, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, Angel tried to land his flamingo airplane, El Rio Caroni, atop Ayan Tapui, but the plane was sure. damaged when the wheels sank into the marshy ground. Angel and his three companions, including his wife, Marie. By the way, she divorced him very shortly after this. <laughs> shortly thereafter. She's like, I had enough of this. Uh, yes, I, I'm not enough doing of these this beds. You're crazy. He was probably also wearing an APG t-shirt. <laughs> he probably was. I mean, I know it was 1937. <laughs> and, but, he, and he really know. did get a divorce. We're forced to descend the Tapui on foot. It took them 11 days to make their way back wow. to civilization by the gradually sloping backside. But news of their... <laughs> Back, mount, for at that the mountain backside, awesome. mountain backside. But news <laughs> of their adventure spread, and the oh, waterfall yeah. was named Angel Falls in his honor. The name of the waterfall, Salto de Angel, was del first. Angel. Say it again. Salto del Angel. Oh, okay. Angel. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Uh, was first published on a Venezuelan government map in December 1939, and uh, there's I, I'm. Including a picture here, I'm going to go ahead and share it with everybody in the in the chat room because they just deserve to see this. I think. Um, and if you're listening to the audio only, look in the show notes. You'll see the picture of this um, monoplane, um, Johnny Angels. Wow, um, monoplane. Big, and big I could shocks. They've got. I, go, I was going to say. I understand now why <laughs> it um, kind of gets got stuck in the marshy. Um, the marshy square wheels yeah because the the cement blocks that are attached to the wheels yeah. just do not look very practical to me 
No, they don't. That must be a devil getting airborne. <laughs> Looks a lot like a Ford tri-motor, but Ford it only tri- has yeah, one motor. A Ford Ford one motor. Solo. Ford uni motor. Anyway. It's like the, just the fuselage. And the, it's, it's yeah, it's the kind sense. of corrugated metal mm-hmm. effect that they've used, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm glad that I did a little bit more research here regarding Angel Falls because actually I was trying to figure out exactly how – you know, how, how far the water falls down. It's like 3000, some, some odd feet. It's amazing. Um, but, um, and then I kind of stumbled upon the fact that what really the, the falls were named for an American aviator. Um, yeah. Interesting. Very impressive. Yeah. So thank you for pointing us to that uh, Facebook video, uh, Texas Charlie. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can watch the entire thing and enjoy that music again. Um, and, and then be inspired to go watch red October. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. has nothing to do with angel falls. Trust me. I don't want to spoil it's all right. it. It's, it's, it's all about a Scottish Russian submarine. Yes. Commander. That's right. Scottish Russian. Very common. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, what? I don't, I don't remember the submarine commander wearing a kilt, but, uh, I'll have to, Go back and, and <laughs> well, they never go below his waist. <laughs> they never did shoot that. I think he was, they? yeah, <laughs> for good reason. All right, um, Texas Charlie also sent us um, another piece of feedback regarding uh, some dude's name, some dude named Craig Hosking, and he has a very unusual airplane that uh, looks like a biplane sort of uh it's got landing gear on the bottom where it belongs and also on the top and uh, does some kind of an air show thing where he lands upside down lands in a pit special uh, looks like a, a pit very special special pit special a very special pit <laughs> it's special. an extra special pit <laughs> and <laughs> you watch this video and you go this guy must be crazy because i mean he is like upside down for a very long time including like taxiing around on the ground before he yeah. takes off again. From, from experience, uh, prolonged main negative G is really painful. And in some it's just uncomfortable. Your eyes start to pop blood vessels and it's just awful. So how the hell this guy does an entire air show, like mainly upside down, I think is nuts. Well, he, he has probably suffered brain damage as I have, and I think that might be why, because I used to do the same <laughs> darn thing. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, we. I used to when I was an instructor. Well, our students always had to put together a, a an aerobatic sequence as one of their tasks when they were learning uh, aerobatics and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used to cringe because they used to love doing outside turns, and uh, so they'd do a whole three sixty at like minus two and a half g, minus three g, and by the end of that, I was sitting in the back going, ah, oh, I've had enough of this. And I was a young man then. <laughs> Thankfully, I think most of the airplanes that I flew in the Air Force, uh, you couldn't sustain have inverted flight. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> nope, uh, not for me. Not for uh, me. So, sadly, the Hawk was very capable. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> <You're> so am I. <laughs> Okay, um, number nine, number nine, number nine. Robert and Dave sent us links to this um, news article. Um, Let's see. Robert says, I'm not exactly sure what to think of this news item. Laugh out loud. 
And then uh, Dave says, I saw this lighthearted story on the news and its similarity to the Tom Hanks film, The Terminal. Having never been to O'Hare, how nice is it to want to live there? (laughs) 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 Not that nice. Oh, It got me me thinking about what airport would you guys choose uh, to do this uh, if you had to and why? Oh, actually, that was from Dave, that question. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Sorry. From Dave. So uh, before we answer that, Dave. Mm. Hold on to that thought. Uh, let's tell you about what it is they're talking about. Uh, a California man who police said claimed to be too afraid to fly due to COVID-19, which kind of begs the question, how did he get to oh, Chicago O'Hare? Uh, hit out for three months in a secured area of O'Hare International Airport until his weekend arrest, prosecutors said on Sunday. Aditya Singh 36 is charged with felony criminal trespass to a restricted area of an airport and misdemeanor theft. In bond court Sunday, prosecutors said Singh arrived at O'Hare on a flight from Los Angeles, so obviously he wasn't too afraid to take that flight on October 19 and allegedly has lived in the airport's security zone ever since without detection. Cook County Judge Susana Ortiz reacted incredulously Sunday after a prosecutor detailed the allegations. She, this is her quote. So, if I understand you correctly, you're telling me that an unauthorized non-employee individual was allegedly living within a secure part of the O'Hare Airport terminal from October 19th, 2020 to January 16th, 2021, and was not detected. I want to understand you correctly. <laughs> and the answer That's to that correct. was, yes. Uh, early Saturday afternoon, two United Airlines employees approached him and asked to see his identification. Assistant State's Attorney Kathleen Haggerty said Singh lowered his face mask and showed them an airport ID badge that he was wearing around his neck. The badge actually belonged to an operations manager who had reported it missing October 26th, a uh, long time ago. The employees called 911. Police took Singh into custody about 11 10 a.m saturday in terminal two near gate f12 i think the acme gates are not too far from there they're not i may have seen him <laughs> in, in my transiting through o'hare anyway uh yeah he reportedly found the badge and was scared to go home due to covid well it was california so i cannot sort of understand him being fearful to go back to california <laughs> Uh, she told the other pass the judge the other passengers were giving him food, so he was doing the Tom Hanks thing in uh, in the terminal at O'Hare. Interesting. Yeah, nuts. <clears throat> what airport would you choose if you were going to live there for three months? I don't think I'd choose any actually, but I can't think of a great one. I mean, definitely one with a lot of food options. So I'd have to be mm-hmm. well um, provisioned. Um, from a financial standpoint, because I need food. Um, I don't think I could just live off of what other people would give me unless it was dire emergency and I couldn't leave for um, reasons out of my control or unrest or something along those lines. Um, so I'm actually thinking someplace like Dubai or like, I mean, there's lots of good shopping and food in there. Yeah, but you have to also think about the the local political system and yeah. But if uh, I'm just in the system. airport, okay. Well, that's true. I mean, you don't want to be caught. Yeah, but it, yeah, so that's what I mean. If you get caught, caught, 
then you have to think about what the well, consequences. If, I, if, if that's be. the case, then I want to probably be in like Salt Lake City or something. They're Salt Lake nice City, there. that'd be a good choice. Beautiful hmm. panoramic views from the nice large, views of the mountains. Yeah, yeah. And brand new airport, new terminal just opened. I haven't been in there, so I don't really know what the uh, provisions are like, but. Not too far yeah. to the Red Iguana uh, restaurant. Um, Not far at all. Although you'd have to go outside of the leave. airport to yeah. do that. So that probably wouldn't yeah. be a good idea. But there's a Cafe Rio inside, so that's okay. Oh, I would survive. Okay. I like it. Let's do Salt Lake City for the next three months. And a High West, high west um, distillery. Ooh. So. Oh, yeah. That's very important. Mm-hmm. You just have to have, you have to look um, sad enough for people to buy you <laughs> Whiskey and food. Whiskey. And tacos. And tacos. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it has to look pretty sad for people to start buying your whiskey, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. You I was would. trying I was actually trying to yeah. I was actually trying to think if there's an airport that I can think of that has like good sleeping accommodations, just like in the terminal itself where you wouldn't have to go into a lounge or mm. um, you know, pay for like one of those sleeping pods that's like a hundred dollars. Well, we trying to just live in an airport for free, are we just living in an airport because if you've got money there are plenty of airports that are very nice to live in yeah i think we're we're talking about like you have no money a scrounging in an airport yeah. okay mm-hmm. well then i'd I want wouldn't... to be someplace where people with who have lots of money are transiting through yes oh i suppose there's enough of those and uh, being a pickpocket at airports probably uh you know mm-hmm. target rich environment I think the, the people of Salt Lake City are nice people, so they might. They are. They are. Take care. It's of not them. a bad option. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, I'd go for Changi personally. Okay. I haven't actually been there, but apparently it features uh, some stunning uh, architecture. Um, it's got three thousand trees, three hundred mm-hmm. shops and restaurants. It's got uh, the first butterfly garden in an airport in the world. Uh, it's got uh, an entertainment complex, uh, 24-hour movie theaters. Uh, might be good to sleep in. Changi is uh, uh, Singapore? Yeah. Uh, you know, if they catch you there, they're not going to be they, – they're not shy. Well, they're pretty about, good. They're not going to – they're going to chop your hands off. Uh, but they'll uh, they'll nice take you in like Singapore. Those. They'll do the switch but thing. They've got a, uh, yeah, they've got a rooftop swimming pool and hot tub. Uh, I don't know. I think I'd rather go with Liz's choice, which would be Vancouver. Um, yeah, I was going to be another choice. Vancouver. Something. Canadians. Uh, which is beautiful. Canadians are nice people, uh, and they're, they're not going nice to, to punish you at all. Because I'm sure. Well, they'll probably just politely anyway. ask you to never come back. They'll probably talk you to right. death. No, they'll, um, they'll probably think, well, it had something to do with your poor upbringing, upbringing or something, and have it could on. be, yeah, or yeah. Perth in Western Australia. That's a pretty beautiful oh, okay. airport. There's another option. Well, hey, folks, if you're listening to the show and you're looking for a place to hang out for three months with no money <laughs> to live, <laughs> there you go. We go. Where? Yeah. Would, no, well, that would not sorry. be my sorry. first choice. Bye. I'm sorry. Um, Liz, Liz was saying I was flashing, but I thought the camera angle was such that you could only see from my chest up. Okay. The streakers are back in the coffee shop. <laughs> I think they were running by outside in the oh, snow. Oh, were they? The okay. Rain. It's very dark snow. outside. Right Precipitating. Yeah. Um, all right. Moving on. Um, <laughs> this is a good one. And they're all good, of course. Um, Jeff, I'm offended. Just kidding. 
Hey, APG crew. I've been a wallflower APG listener and figured it was time to step out and mingle a little. I started listening to APG three or four years ago when my interest in aviation started. Now, when I say interest, I mean my desire to overcome my fear of flying. I used to be terrified of flying. I would have trouble sleeping the night before flights. I couldn't eat until after I'd landed. I would tense up every time the plane made an unexpected noise or jostled in turbulence. It all came to a head one morning after a sleepless night before a flight where I found myself in a Nashville bathroom stall room throwing up from anxiety. I said to myself, okay, this is ludicrous. I got to figure out how to get over this fear. I see people standing in line for Starbucks more worried about not getting their grande vanilla half-calf almond milk latte with Splenda than cruising 35,000 feet above the ground. Something has got to change. So I ran headlong into my fear. I started learning everything I could about aviation and fell in love with it. That's when I stumbled upon your podcast. Your podcast actually helped me get over my fear of flying. Listening to y'all talk so nonchalantly about flying week in and week out brought it home how normal and safe air travel was. I realized that for airline pilots, flying was as benign or sometimes as boring as working a desk job at a computer particularly if you're an Airbus pilot with only having to press two buttons and what. Hey, 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 <laughs> enough of that. Uh, that was not me. That was actually uh, from, from Jeff. Jeff. Uh, not, not me, though. You're I'm Jeff. Jeff. Yeah, no, but that's not a different Jeff. Anyway. Um, Jeff, did you just send in your own feedback? Yeah, I did. <laughs> just so you could insult me. I, yes. And uh, I do have trouble. I, I do have trouble sleeping the night before a flight. Yeah. No, just kidding. Yeah, I threw up a lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Thank you, APG crew, so much for being a huge part of overcoming my fear of flying and feeling my love for aviation. Oh, one last thing. Sorry for the novella. I want to thank you all for providing hours of excellent content. I'm a touring mus musician, and the APG podcast has made my many hours of driving much more tolerable. It's always a special moment when I put the podcast on in the van. My fellow bandmates cheer with excitement. Or or are they groaning? I don't know. It's hard to tell. Hey, Jeff's bandmates. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. Yeah. tolerating we're, his We're going to go with the excitement and the cheer and not yes. groaning. That's what we're going to go with. I can't wait till all of this pandemic crap is over and we can meet face-to-face -face at an APG meetup. Yes, I'm. Here, Looking here. forward to that as well. If any of the APG crew are ever in Nashville, I'd love to buy you lunch or a beer. We were. We were in Nashville. We were? We yeah. had breakfast uh, last, in Nashville. Last, well, 2019 um, yeah. in uh, July or Damn. August, I think. Um, but, and I'm in Nashville. I was in Nashville when I got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going back there, then. But I don't. <laughs> Such a pleasant memory. <laughs> Mm. I think I think I had it probably before I actually got to Nashville. So I probably brought it to Nashville, actually. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, yeah, I intended to ask a question, but I don't want to stress out Liz by taking up a bunch of feedback time. Uh, you don't, uh, you don't oh, understand, we didn't Liz. even get a question. <laughs> I will write in at, again at a later date. Anyway, so long. And thanks for all the fish, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> uh, that's Jeff. awesome. So, yeah, um, so, I'll definitely uh, look you up, ring you up there, uh, Jeff, next time in Nashville. Uh, it's not uh, this, it's not an uncommon destination for the airplane that I'm now flying. So 
And any Douglas Adams fan is a friend of mine. Yep. And I was just going to say that's actually a topic of conversation that's come up before, especially while flying skydivers. If there's more than one of us flying the aircraft and we're having you know a down moment and a chance to have some conversation, it's often turned to, hmm, there's these people behind us who are about to jump out of an airplane for the first time and they're probably scared out of their minds um, or nervous at least a little bit. And we're sitting up here talking about like what we're going to order for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's truly how... Routine. Yeah, you're not jumping out of the airport. Or actually eating lunch <laughs> sometimes. It's like, anyone want a French fry? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Trying to keep it down, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm glad that we had some part in a positive way of uh, getting helping you get over your fear of flying. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a real achievement, actually, because we know there's no logic behind a phobia. So if you can overcome it and uh, learn to control it, indeed, in your case, conquer it, uh, I'd take my hat off to you. There's mm-hmm. no logic to our Absolutely. podcast either, so. <laughs> so you're in good company. Yeah, you're in good company. You're suggesting our podcast is a phobia? <laughs> I'm sure there's someone with a fear of APG. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what, the, what yeah. the scientific medical <laughs> term is for that yet, but we'll, we'll think of it. Liz says Rick has a fear of APG today. <laughs> Yeah, very true. Yes. No, just kidding. I'm sure he has a great excuse. He's probably out there working for a living, flying airplanes and such. Um, Let's see. We'll squeeze one more in. That's what she said. She said. Um, That's what I'm doing. We think a lot. Great minds, Liz. Great minds. Uh, Peter uh, sent Nick this update about that arrogant millionaire pilot that landed at an RAF base in lockdown because he wanted to see the beach. You'll remember that. We talked about that last year, I believe the pilot involved was. Yeah. It even became a show title. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It did. Richard. That's right. Great artwork there. Richard Charles Priestley Wood. Oh, you got to be someone important. If you have four names, four names, uh, <laughs> yeah. 60 years old. I'm disappointed though. It doesn't end in like the third or the eighth or he was being modest. Sir. I'm sure it probably okay. does. Fair yeah. Enough. Fair enough. He landed at RAF Valley to visit the beach, but instead sparked an incident involving fire engines and led to an investigation by the Civil Aviation Authority. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he was flying up to uh, Yorkshire to visit his mum, but when he contacted her uh, en route, she said that she was busy. <laughs> 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 she blew him off. Not today, basically. son. Not today. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I don't have time for you today. Uh, so he diverted to Anglesey. Uh, you know, it's uh, that makes sense, right? Uh, RAF. Yeah, it's like, it's like well out of your way, but there you go. <laughs> RAF Valley was closed at the time, and a notice filed with the Aviation Authority had been issued to that effect due to its being a bank holiday. The prosecutor said that there was also a ban on civilian flights at RAF Valley to a small part of the airfield due to COVID-19 restrictions. But she said that at 11.40 a.m. that day, Fire Officer Keith Roberts saw an aircraft overflying the airfield. At one point, its undercarriage was partly down, and he decided it must be an emergency and raised the alarm. Radio records show that Wood had called the RAF Valley Tower at least seven times about landing, but... Unsurprisingly, there was no response from air traffic control because the airfield was closed. <laughs> um, you know, you think at that point you'd start to wonder, you'd go, did I miss something? There's some sort of no-tam yeah. or I yeah. don't know. You know, I'm starting to wonder, 
maybe this is just an alias uh, name. It might be well, here. Here's a description of the man. He was a white man, six feet, six inches, somewhat thin. He was wearing shorts, a thin, what, cagoule? I don't know what it, that is. I've never cagoule. heard of it. It's cagoule. A, it's a, a wind cheetah. Oh, okay. You know, like a thin, windbreaker. Okay. Yeah. A cagoule type jacket and trainers. He had glasses and short gray hair and a beard. And he was saying something about plain tails. <laughs> Mr. Roberts asked him. I did it because of played tales. <laughs> he, he was Mr. looking for Roberts. a new topic. <laughs> uh, Mr. Roberts asked him why he had made an unscheduled landing at Aria Valley. He replied, I wanted to see the beach. I guess when he realized how serious the situation is, he, he became less flippant and arrogant with the uh, folks there at, uh, at the airport, the military airport. Uh, and they, uh, did they tell him that, uh, you know, you, you've landed here without authorization and we can't let you take off, but we can't stop you. I think that was part of it, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Cause well, yeah, you can't just, take off, but we can't stop you. They're, they're so just firemen. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're the fire service. They, they didn't have any guards with guns and things. Um, after all, we don't tend to do that in our civic, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. this country on our military basis. Yeah, that had been there. I think we talked about that when we covered this initially. That that had been an American airfield, military airfield. That it probably would have had a couple bullet holes. <laughs> well, he'd have been laid <laughs> flat out on the tarmac, <laughs> naked, face yeah. down, with about ten M16s trained on him. Mm, exciting. Um, <laughs> Wood was said to have an annual income of three hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds and one million pounds in savings. Kind of interesting that they put this in the article. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I uh, because to... it, uh, because a lot of fines in the UK are related to your income. Oh, that he has to declare his income, oh. uh, and they probably got that from the court documents. I see. Okay, magistrates' court chairman Alistair Langdon fined him seventeen hundred pounds for each of the two offenses. It kind of seems like he got off light, doesn't? doesn't yeah, it? that doesn't sound like very much. He also had to pay the CAA's 750-pound costs and a 190-pound victim surcharge. I hate those victim surcharges. So you add up. 3,500 pounds. That's right. Particularly when you've got a whole airplane full of them, Jeff. (laughs) Shut up. Another bad landing. Damn it, that's another uh, 120 victim, victim surcharges. It, it really adds up when you <laughs> multiply it by the number of people suffering. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hell. Uh, oh, boy. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, was it Peter? Uh, yeah, it's St. Peter of, uh, he, he goes by the handle on into it, of St. Peter of Kent. Oh, St. Peter Man, of Kent. I'm terrible at math. It was 4,340 pounds total. Sir Peter. Sir Peter. Well, that's about, you know, how many thousand dollars is that? Six thousand dollars? A lot of money. Yeah, like five thousand yeah, something. Nothing to shake a fist at, right? No. It's a, it's a, it wasn't a cheap a day out. <laughs> no. no. Will it keep him from doing it again? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe. Probably not. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Liz says, I hope the beach visit was worth it. Well, it's not. As we discussed it at the time, it's a crap beach. <laughs> yeah, it was not. Not, a, not the most beautiful of beaches I've seen. No, beach. it's a it's oh. a it's a shingle a beach. There's no actual sand there. Oh, it goes stones into sea. It's you know, hmm. not good. Not good at all. All right. Well, with that, 
I think it's now time for us to end this episode, thankfully. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in learning more about the show, if you're new, welcome. I think you're going to love it here. Uh, The community is awesome. Uh, You can learn more about it and the crew and other stuff by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com, our website. And uh, we're also on social media. We are indeed. You can head over to Twitter. We are at APG Crew. And you can find our individual Twitter uh, handles pinned to the top of that page as well. Um, if Facebook is more your to your liking, we're uh, at facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And I will eventually get back to putting things on Instagram where we are, we are also APG Crew. Hey, you're busy, you know? Yeah, have I've been, I've been a little busy, so I've definitely been a slacker on the social medias, but slacker. I'm also a slack slacker. What? Yeah, good good segue there. Um, let's let Hillel tell us all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel, and a big round of applause to our producer-director, who happens to be in Toronto. Ontario, Ontario. Isn't that a kind of chocolate biscuit? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Let's hear that again. A place to stand. A place to grow. They're the singing mounties, aren't they? I think so. Yeah. That was just something that Liz and I recorded before the show. <laughs> very good. <laughs> very catchy. <laughs> thank you. So thank you, Liz, for all the work that you do to uh, make this show happen each and every week. And uh, thank you, everybody in the live chat room, live audience, and people that downloaded this thing and tell everybody about it. And uh, gosh. Uh, You mean so much to us, and we do appreciate you. And we hope to see you again soon on the next episode of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. In the meantime, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't 
got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, body guy 